Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joan. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 22, where we'll be revisiting the film Quantum of Solace. So we didn't really talk about our history with Casino Royale last time, which, considering how long we spoke for, is amazing that we didn't cover that subject. That's true, yeah. So I wanted to start off with uh, us actually talking about this film, because we were like, oh, is it too is it too much to say we were adults at this point? Mm. About, what age would I have been? 16? Yeah, well, I remember going to see Casino Royale on my own with a friend at that time. So, like, this was the first Bond experience in cinema for me, so I would say so. When you say on your own, you mean no parents? No parents, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, we went out, and it was actually then my cousin's wedding afterwards, which was kind of strange, but Wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> precedence was, was Bond. <laughs> With Casino Royale, you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember doing that as well, because I, I would have been 14, but that was when, like, too young to really be going out and causing mischief, but old enough to be like, we can all get on the bus! And yeah. go somewhere new and get KFC. It's crazy, guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so did you see Quantum of Solace in the cinema as well? I have no memory at all. <laughs> so I, so I have you no don't memory. know either way? I don't know. I don't know. I, re- I, I, I might have said, no, this wasn't in my list in episode zero, but I really have no memory of this film. Well, I have very little of this memory of this film, especially when it first came out in 2008. Uh like later watchings, I sort of got a bit more from it. And But when it came out, it's kind of strange as well, because I obviously really liked Casino Royale, but then it sort of dropped off a bit for this one. It's really weird you say that, because I feel like my experience was the same. Um, before re-watching it for this, I think I do remember quite a bit of the film, although I completely forgot that Mathis was even in it, so obviously <laughs> not that much. Um, but I do remember like key scenes from it, but when it came out, yeah, despite really liking Casino Royale, I I don't know if I just like fed off from the Bond franchise as a whole, because I do remember stop. I like I didn't play the last few games that came out on the PS2. Like from Russia with Love, I didn't touch at all at the time. The last one would have been GoldenEye Rogue Agent, which I think came around at the same time as Casino Royale. But it's like yeah, got really into Casino Royale, really enjoyed it. Was clearly into Bond. And then there's like footage missing, and then Skyfall came out. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think I saw this in the cinema, but I wouldn't be that confident in saying that. Yeah, I'm the same. It's really strange as well because, well, I suppose yeah, from from Casino Royale to Skyfall, that's six years. That's that's a decent gap. But yeah, it, my brain does kind of go from one to the other quite nicely with the whole Olympic stuff in 2012 being a, a kind of year of celebrations and everything, and. This is just in the middle. And I, I guess I was the same. I guess maybe just at that point, I was not as into Bond. I don't know what I was doing instead, but certainly wasn't uh, as much on the Bond franchise. Yeah, and I do feel like I remember hearing about this film, though, but it might have just been a case of everyone saying the new Bond is bad. So I was like, I'll forget it then. And there was just nothing else tying me to the franchise. So I just ignored it until Skyfall came out and everyone's like, this one's really good. I'm like, oh, all right then. Back I go. <laughs> You're a sheep. Wake up, sheeple. 
it, that's that must be it but yeah i just think that's what it was being like a teenager becoming an adult kind of i guess it was just a lot more fickle you're just a bit more over the place i wasn't super into bond and actually i've probably gotten more into james bond as i've gotten older hence this podcast oh yeah that's a good thing about james bond is it if you're a fan of it you can keep going until you're like 60 and it's absolutely fine like no you, you can be a sad old man he loves james bond and everyone will be like yeah that's fine yeah, Roger Moore really paved the way. If he can <laughs> if he can be into it and playing it at that age. You're safe, yeah. Yeah, if he can do it, why not us? So I guess the general consensus then is it's not even like, oh, this film sucks from us. It's, yeah, that did come out, didn't it? Yeah, which I don't know if that is worse. I think with this rewatch, there, my, my opinion's definitely, uh, well... I don't know if it's changed very much, but it's very, it's more um, like what I get from it is is better. I think it's maybe because we are watching it so soon after Casino Royale as well. But I don't really think it, it warrants that. It's weird. It doesn't really warrant all of the hate that it potentially got. I mean, I don't re- really remember too much when I was I don't know, back in 2008. Uh, but obviously it was less well received because Casino Royale was such a strong film, such a strong entry. But then at the same time, I don't really think it warrants the, uh, man, what an underrated Bond film, Diamond in the Rough, like this one is was completely missed. Like It's not really either of those. Uh, so it is still kind of stuck in that, that middle ground, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it doesn't help that like Daniel Craig's era, all the other films are more like noteworthy than this. Like you yeah. would always look at those films for good and bad reasons, over this and this is just that like short one that just got attached to casino royale at the end so yeah right shall we get into it then okay so actually i want to mention one small thing and i'm curious to see if you had the same experience because i've been watching these on the blu-rays oh here we go i know exactly what you're gonna say I, yes. I, i'm glad you do and every single blu-ray up to this point as part of one set has had a standardized like flow and menu and theming where it's all like 007 and it's like bow and it like comes up and he shoots it. Then you got the menu and it's all like start mission. It's like, oh, and then they have like clips of the film. This one, Quantum of Solace, and I don't know if the other ones are going to be like this for Craig, just had like the standard Blu-ray. They just reprinted the discs to have the same like branding of the rest of the other disc. But the disc itself is actually just like the original Blu-ray discs. And it's very strange. So... I did notice this straight away and I sort of had an inkling because I, I recalled that that box set where they did all that branding was probably around that time Casino Royale came out. So I did wonder, oh, would they have gone back and maybe done that to match or have they just left it? But the thing that really got me is that there was some bloody adverts. <laughs> like yeah. I'd, watched tw- I'd watched 21 of these films and there'd been no adverts. And then I guess stupid one for Tom Cruise's face in, in there and Valkyrie and all this sort of stuff. I'm, no, go away. Yeah, I like, I was able to skip those, but it, that was very odd. I put in the disc and adverts came. I'm like, ew, no. I could have skipped them, but I was I watched them out of like, because <laughs> I wanted to be angry. <laughs> oh no, that's a good way to put you in the mood for Quantum of Solace. <laughs> How dare they <laughs> <laughs> do this to me? But yeah, and then you get onto the main menu and it is, it is themed towards the film, but themed in like the worst way possible where it's like, a, yeah, well, we'll talk about it, but like a really terrible like menu CG thing and, oh, I hate it. Yeah, so not a good start there. Um, but we go to the film and once again, no circles. 
which I was a little bit confused about because I like the circles. And it's like, well, surely by this point we can just get to the circles, but I guess it doesn't matter too much as this is meant to be like a part to a Casino Royale. But I was a little bit surprised that they didn't add the circles for this. I recall reading that the director, Mark Forster, uh, kind of just wanted to put them at the end just to be different. And I think at that point it's like, okay, we... You messed around with the, the formula a bit for Casino Royale, but yeah, just just go back to normal now. I think it's it's fine to do that, but it just just revert back now. We're all good. That's that's kinda how I felt, yeah. You can't end Casino Royale like they did, saying, I'm Bond, James Bond, bala bala and then the next film is just more artsy and doesn't have that stuff in there. Mm. It's like you don't need everything in here, but I feel like they set that up to be in there. And then it just isn't. And like you say, it's at the end and kind of sucks, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I would have liked it, especially because this is now the second one. Like, just give me the circles. It's all I want. Yep, exactly. So instead, we have this camera kind of floating along a lake, like a big, huge lake. And it has like big, a giant mountain next to it. And it's quite intense, moody music. And it's slowly going over the lake and we suddenly like hard cut to a load of cars driving and smashing and going crazy on this uh by the side of the lake but quite in the distance like on this road it's um it's quite hard to explain what road that is but if you're european you probably know what it is where it's like built into the mountainside but it's like it is proper concrete but it's like two lanes it's quite tiny um but it's like right next to this giant lake Um, in italy i believe it is so we go to the camera going across and then we cut to the scene of somebody in an aston martin the aston martin from casino royale so you assume it's bond and a lot of men shooting and it kind of cuts between those two and then we suddenly just cut to the chase itself and all the car sounds are kicking in it's really loud like really intense car sounds and we see men coming out of like one of the cars and they're just shooting at the aston martin and there's like a truck that's coming the other way that Bond is driving towards and the tires get shot out and then it ends up like smashing into Bond's car. Bond spins out a little bit and they're chasing and they kind of come out of this tunnel because they were like in, in a tunnel by the side of the lake, like as part of like this mountain, I believe. Again, it's quite hard to explain. Um, and they kind of come out of the tunnel and it's a very packed road, lots of traffic. And the police are up ahead and they see this chase going on, these cars chasing Bond, and they report it in and they start chasing. And the, the or Bond ends up in a construction yard, a construction site, like almost like a mine or a quarry, I suppose. And the police are chasing, but one of the people who's chasing Bond shoots at the police and kills him. And that car goes off the, the cliff and like rolls down. And actually goes past Bond because Bond is driving down. The police car goes down. Bond is being shot at. One of the cars chasing Bond locks into Bond's car. And there's a truck up ahead while they're locked and going forward. And they unlock at the last second. And Bond like spins, I want to say, and shoots out the driver. And that car falls off the cliff. Um, And it goes very quiet after that. That was very loud and crazy, that bit. So we see the Aston get into a city and we get... Sienna? Was it? Uh, ooh. <laughs> Maybe? Yeah, so there, it's like there's a thing with this film where they like put where they are on the screen, which is nothing new, but they do in these very over the top exaggerated fonts. 
like specialized to each location. So I want to say it says Siena. Well, that's why I put in my notes. Maybe I spelled that wrong, but it's in Italy. Mm. So the Aston goes into the city, goes into this side tunnel. I think we get a little bit of the Bond theme here, a little bit of a remix. Like not a proper, yeah, like the guitar riff from the Bond theme plays a little bit. Yeah. Bond parks up, get out to the car. He opens the boot. Mr. White is in the boot and he says it's time to get out. And then the the frame just freezes. Like it just freezes and that's it. So I was trying to explain that and yeah, I, I guess I was trying to explain it somewhat <laughs> in the way the film presents it, which is absolute <laughs> chaos. You did well considering. It's like there's definitely stuff I missed, but the actual chase itself is quite a standard Bond chase. Bond is kind of in a tight tunnel by a lake and he has two people chasing him and he almost gets hit by a truck but doesn't quite and then the police get involved and start shooting and it all that stuff is quite standard but what I didn't explain is that the editing of this is absolutely bonkers. It is absolutely insane where it like the way I described it in my note is that it's like it cuts a half second early for every single shot. So yeah, you, or no, yeah, yeah. So you just don't quite get enough time to see what's going on. Yeah, no shot lasts for longer than half a second. It's just maddening. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to sound dramatic, and and like a, a exaggerating here. But it literally hurt my eyes to watch this scene. <laughs> my eyes, I, my <laughs> eyes, my beautiful eyes. No, honestly, it was. It's hard to watch. Yeah. It's really hard to watch this bit. So I'm also trying to like reset here, and I want to. You know, sometimes I get a bit negative, get a bit whiny, perhaps. So I'm trying not to do that. But I did hate this. I, I really. <laughs> I really hated this because well, it doesn't help that we have to take notes for these things and this is just impossible to take notes for because mm. so much happens in such a short amount of time and you do get a relative sense of what's happening you get the basics you just can't really connect with any of it like you just don't engage with it because it's just like a load of flashing lights in your face so even though there's like some quite cool stuff happening here, I think. It's like I can't engage with this because it's just like somebody's like going booga 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 in my face and expecting <laughs> me to care. And it's like I just don't I roughly know what I'm looking at, but how how can I connect with anything that's happening on screen when the film takes zero time to have anything last more than half a second? The problem is is that I I mean the problem is a terrible editing, yeah. But what I think is sad is that I actually I really like the idea of this, where you are you're just thrown in into the middle of something that Bond is already doing, this car chase, being chased by people, shooting all these like you know cars in the way, trucks in the way, ending up at a quarry. I like that idea, and I think it would be like a really bold start to the film. It's just it is let down by not being able to follow it in the slightest, um, which is a shame. And I think it's like quite funny because even at one point. Uh, where one of the other like enemy cars gets uh, drives off the cliff, it's like even the film itself can't keep up with things because the camera doesn't even catch the car in the, in the shot for most of it. Like the car goes off the camera and the camera's trying to keep up with it. It's so indicative of just like the speed of everything, and it's just just needed to. It just didn't need this sort of editing. I think it would have been fine to have like every other Bond film, really, or maybe not 
maybe not live and let die editing. That's maybe a bit too slow. But, you know, like yeah. just doesn't need to be this crazy shaky cam. Well, there was no balance, right? It's like, I kind of like the idea of maybe going a bit crazy on certain sections, but it's like it needed something in between to let the scene breathe almost. Like, initially, it was quite interesting. And I think the opening shots are actually really cool. And it's a really cool idea. And especially the sound editing in this film is very unique compared to anything else we've had in a Bond film, where it is intense music on a lake slowly panning towards it, but from quite towards the chase, but from a distance, and then just cutting and hearing the engines and having them be so loud, and then cutting back and cutting towards it. I think that's really cool. But once it actually got to the chase itself, it needed to settle in a little bit and give you some sort of sense of what's going on. And I, I was, I'm so conflicted about it. Ultimately, I think it's bad. But I feel like this editing style and how this scene is constructed is something that the film does quite a lot. And sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. And this one, sadly, is one where it's not. But oh, on paper, I think this sounds really cool. It's just, I just can't look at this and enjoy it. It's just one of those that if you sneeze, you've missed half the chase. Mm. And you just completely lose, like are completely lost. But I think a a crazy manic chase to start the film that directly connects to Casino Royale because it's Bond being chased after kidnapping Mister White and getting away. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. They just oh, it makes me so sad because <laughs> because I want to say I did like it, but I know how much I hated it in the moment. So sadly, I'm gonna say it. I think this is the worst opening, the worst pre-title sequence of any Bond film. Oh, okay. I I'm can't not, think mm. of any that I disliked more. I'd need to think about that. But it was it was not, yeah, it wouldn't be very high up on mine. <laughs> that is for sure. I think, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, so like you were saying how this is quite indicative of what's to come in this film. And uh, you're right. I think this is probably the worst example of, of that style that they go with. Because I was trying to as we'll discuss the scenes later on, but I was trying to work out as I was watching this film, am I just adjusting to this style or are some of them actually better than others? I really, I had to sort of question myself then because some of them I, I actually don't think are that bad and they are still quite similar to this. I think, uh, I guess maybe, yeah, they're just kind of done it ever so slightly better, which is enough to differentiate them from this. I think they did do it better, honestly, because yeah. there's just nothing so crazy as as this. Um, some scenes all are also kind of like this, but yeah, some of the action scenes, I think they did spend a little bit more time on some of the shots. I think something just went really wrong here. And also the next action scene when we get there. But you can tell the editing is bad because of what I said at the end, where it literally freezes on the frame to go to the credit sequence. I thought my DV my Blu-ray had, had like paused or something or That's what it looks like it just stops <laughs> and normally looks, yeah. you would expect like you know some sort of oh something to be imposed over the top like i don't know a bullet or some or some circle or something like to then transition you in but it just stops and then it just hard cuts and it just looks so amateur which is why i kind of think something potentially just went really wrong with this scene well it was yeah it was a very lame way to go into the titles sometimes they do it very very nicely Sometimes they do it just enough where it's like, I don't know, the shot of Bond in a plane flying off or whatever he's just done. And that's that's kind of all you really need, to be honest, just as a nice little 
segue into this. And but no, you don't. What you don't do is just have a freeze frame of Craig looking down, like in just the. There's <laughs> nothing interesting about that. Yeah, he just all. opened the boot and it's like free frame. We got it. <laughs> just him opening the boot. Yeah, no, it's terrible. I think you're right. Something went terribly wrong here. Maybe they, maybe they got the titles too late, and they, I don't know, they just wasn't sure of how to. Ah, who knows? I. That's the thing with though this film, right? And it's it's something that's quite well documented. I think Daniel Craig himself has talked about it a lot that this film got like heavily or negatively affected by the writers' strike that happened around this time, which meant they had a script, but they couldn't really make any changes as they went. But and we'll probably talk about that more later. I don't see how that has anything to do with this scene. It just feels like a very deliberate choice to do it this way, and they just kind of fail miserably at it. And I also will say that uh, Mark Foster did bring in his editors for this, or at least one of his editors. Mm. So the guy that edited Casino Royale didn't edit this, but then he did come back and edit Skyfall, and Quantum of Solace was edited by Mark Foster's guy. So... It feels That's, like in somewhat yeah. of a way it's a deliberate choice and I don't think it has anything to do with the rush production or anything. I don't think those are the excuses for this. I think they deliberately chose this style and it was one where, that I'm really surprised this is the final version of it. That Yeah, that's quite... Uh, I mean, that, that says it all then if that is the case where it just so happens the films either side of this are fine and this is the one and it's where it has a different editor. Okay then. I mean, I think there are a few things in this film that we probably end up talking about that where you could just tell it is uh, the director's own little, uh, wants to do it his way, leave his mark. And I think that has always been a thing with the Bond films. Well, ever since, apart from like John Glenn era and stuff where it was the same guy for a long time. But we do mention about how the changing directors do often have their own um, kind of feeling imposed onto, their own style imposed onto the Bond films. And I guess this is just a kind of unlucky one where for a lot of things, it doesn't really match the Bond films of what he wanted to do. I don't really know the story about why he was picked ultimately, but then I don't really know why anyone's picked. So that shouldn't really come up, to be honest. No, it doesn't feel like... Yeah, this is not a super established guy, someone who did direct a lot. And I do think the ideas are super good. It just He just didn't put it off, I think. He just didn't pull it off. But he did direct World War Z, the Brad Pitt film, which I actually did really like. And this sort of style, I believe he used in that. It's been a while since I've seen it. And that was very successful because it was a zombie film. So Mm. the whole point is that you want to kind of disorient the audience and panic them. And this strong sound design that he obviously likes, where things are very loud and in your face, but also a lot of jumping around so you don't know what's going on. That's like perfect for a zombie film because the people in the scene are not supposed to know what's going on. But for James Bond, that's not the point of the character in these scenes you are supposed to be able to see what's going on and understand it and i can appreciate him taking a step in this direction to do a more intense visceral car chase it's just he went too far and just kind of ends up just becoming completely something you just can't really enjoy because he just went too far even though like i love the sound of this on paper this opening should be awesome and it's just ah it just just doesn't do it it's just ah such a shame now i'm picturing a bond film with like all the zombie bond girls that got killed because of bond like Ooh. vespers there as a zombie <laughs> sorry every sense you mentioned about world wars there that's that's where my mind went to i'm sure you made some good points then i may not have been listening to you now <laughs> oh okay um, <laughs> oh, i don't blame you um 
So, yeah, I suppose speaking of all the like differences that we've really spotted in terms of editors and stuff and directors, uh, the title sequence, as we move into it, uh, is another change, actually. It's not Daniel Kleinman, who had done the previous five uh, titles ever since Goldeneye, and it was actually by a design agency called MK12 who did this one. And oh. Yeah, and I think it is... Well, in it, it's kind of... Um, very much uh, sand influenced. A lot of this film is taking place in a desert or deserty areas. Uh, so sand, deserts, sand dunes, big globes like uh, star and constellation stars in the sky and everything. But yeah, the main thing I think is like yeah, sand. There's like silhouettes of Bond shooting, and it's the bullet blasts are made of sand, and sand dunes are kind of start moving, and it's actually women, which I thought looked quite good. Uh, it's all very sort of orange and bluey and moody and it's very very different obviously to what we saw with Casino Royale that had a very very distinct style I think this one has got its own style as well I don't think it's as good um but yeah it is a different team doing it and I think it does show like it's it's a very different style and I don't hate it I don't hate it at all I think it looks fine I don't think it quite matches (sighs) if you're gonna do something different like Casino Royale where you had all the car suits and stuff like they went all out for that and I think this is it kind of does a little bit different but also tries to have the same elements as well and I don't I don't know I don't know if it quite works as strongly but I don't mind it I think having it change and be a different team uh is probably a good idea ultimately like it's good to see different things come out of like these title sequences I have no clue if they ever stayed with MK12 or whether they went, went back to Kleinman but um, I don't mind it. I also didn't mind it, but now that you're saying it as somebody else, that kind of makes sense because the the first time that somebody does something in the Bond franchise because it's so established, it's usually a little bit more generic and they're just not quite... Or they either like go all out crazy and it doesn't work like we just saw before or they go a little bit safe. And this to me feels like someone going a little bit safe with it. There's yeah. no real strong visuals here. It is, as you say, Bond kind of as a silhouette walking through the sand and a lot of like women who are silhouettes. And I quite like the camera movement here. I always appreciate in one of these where they do some interesting camera movement where it's not quite static. So there's some points where they kind of pull back and spin and it it, it makes it a little bit more distinct because usually they're a lot more static. So I think getting that motion in there is a, a nice touch. But yeah, ultimately, this just doesn't go anywhere at all. It's just what you see in the first opening bits, which is Bond in the desert, firing a gun, and then some women silhouettes. That's kind of it for all of it. And some of the shots look decent, and it's not really a bad idea, but this just feels very safe, very basic. There's no real development of it visually. There's, it's just not really that distinct like Goldeneye, where you have the oranges that then go to the purples. There's nothing really like that here. There's a little bit of progression, but it's just a little bit disappointing. Well, not di- disappointing, it's not fair, but but yeah, I was looking for a little bit more, but it's not really bad, but it just feels a bit generic and forgettable. Yeah, I would agree. <sighs> right, the music. Um, <laughs> I made a joke in the last episode about needing earplugs, and... I do maintain that I don't like this Bond song. It's Another Way to Die by Jack White and Alicia Keys. It's uh, the first 
duet, I suppose, for a Bond song. And although saying duet, I think, is is maybe a bit too uh, flattering. Cause it implies <laughs> they harmonise at some point. Yes, <laughs> which they that's the thing with this. I remember saying this before, but I actually think the song itself is fine. And I quite like sort of the guitar riff and, and the general melody of it. I like it. I think it's just let down by they, they pick two people that just their voices just do not mesh. And it's a, such a shame because they have these bits where they sing separately. Fine. They have these bits where they sing together. Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> like, it just sounds it just sounds bad. I'm not a music expert, but you can tell when voices do not go well together and they theirs don't. No. it's But yeah, again, it's hard to kind of explain technically what went wrong because that's what it feels like. It feels like a technical issue that someone just didn't mix the vocals correctly. That all they did was just had Jack White like sing and Alicia Keys sing, and then they just like slapped them together and that's it. But someone like Jack White, who I want to say produced this song, or I want to say like David Arnold must have been involved, you would hope, like should have been able to do a little bit more with this or done something better. So it's like it's really confusing because you're just not used to hearing this sort of vocals or this sort of what feels like a technical mistake in such a big song. Like, you just don't know how to react to it. It just shouldn't be happening. Like, this is yeah. just wrong. And as you say, like, the rest of the song is pretty solid. But you kind of, because the chorus is bad and just sounds terrible, you know you're always, like, building to it, and it just kind of sinks the whole song. So even the good stuff is heading towards such a horrible, amateur-sounding chorus. And you're just like, ah, oh, if you just... Just mix that correctly. I would. I'd be curious to see if like YouTube has a load of like <laughs> another way to die fixed, where we oh, actually did yeah. mix the vocals correctly. Because if you did that, then I think a lot of the song opens up, and it would actually be pretty good. Not amazing, but pretty good. Um, because they don't go for a pure rock sound. This isn't a, a high energetic rock song like because uh, you know you know my name. This is kind of a more classy slower rock song that tries to have a big chorus which isn't a bad way to go i think that's okay yeah it's just ultimately just yeah ah it just doesn't sound finished at all one other thing i wanted to quickly mention just going back to the um the like visuals of the title i did like i did like the font they kind of did the dots there's there's your dots with the fonts right it's a small thing but I did like how the little circles came across. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, uh, after the sequel, uh, sequel over the after the title sequence, we have um, a shot. We're still in Italy. We have a shot of uh, a big crowd in this uh, piazza with this parade kind of going on around them, and uh, we see where Mister White was taken. There's a kind of MI6. I guess it's like an MI6 safe house underground somewhere. It's kind of this very dark, dingy basement area stone everywhere and everything so um concrete i should say and yeah mr white is sat down ready to be questioned and we see bond come in and he quite clearly says hello mitchell to oh. <laughs> to a man standing like a bodyguard man standing there uh and it's kind of like oh, all right that's interesting he's, he's named that character but then you, you understand why later and yeah bond goes into uh to see m who's also there so Judy's back, of course, uh, and she starts to moan about what happened to Le Chief, about how the Americans won't be happy because they got his body. And this is where I also just liked how Bond goes and 
grabs a drink from the side, like a a glass of bourbon, I guess. So there's always there's always a drink ready when when M's around. I imagine she has someone just there just to be in charge of bringing the the bourbon for her. Oh, that's um, Mitchell. Oh yeah, that's why Bond knows him. Eight years of of bringing her the her drink. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, well, speaking of Mitchell, he says that he's going to go check the perimeter. And I think doesn't she even say like thanks, Mitchell? Yeah, she says thanks, Mitchell as well. Mitchell. I put that all in caps. Thanks, Mitchell. She's like, oh, this is so silly. Stop saying Mitchell. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's M and Bond talking together, and and M has this um, this book of uh, photos, and it's of this really horrible looking corpse, and she's describing uh, this body that uh, was washed up on the coast of Ibiza, and apparently. It was uh, Vespa's boyfriend that we heard about last in the last film. The French-Algerian, Youssef, is his name. And uh, he was, the corpse had his uh, wallet and IDs, which is very handy. But M, she's a bit smarter than that. She had uh, a DNA test with some locks of hair from Vespa's apartment. And she's proved that that's actually not his body. But yeah, these photos that they show, it's like, oh, we're, we're meant to believe that a fish did this or something. And it's like really horrible stuff it's like the most gory thing you've seen in the bond film it's like this face is completely torn apart i uh, did not like that very much but yeah anyway there's also on the uh on the table a photo of uh vespa and the boyfriend as well which bond grabs after m's finished talking puts it in his pocket and m's basically saying that she's worried about bond she's worried about bond's intentions now given what's just happened is he out just for revenge against this man? And he says it's not not important. He's not important. Neither was she. Trying to play it down. And Mitchell comes back in. <laughs> and, it's Mitchell. And says it's clear. It's clear. So uh, thanks, Mitchell. <laughs> and all whilst this is happening, we, we were getting some shots of what's happening above, uh, where that big crowd is, and there's basically just some jockeys coming out. There's clearly going to be some horse race that's happening probably some very special thing that happens in Vienna every year I don't know but uh they go see White as I say who's been sat down and M's there to start questioning him and start being a bit tough on him so they start asking about what he what he knows who does he work with sort of thing and the longer it takes the more painful we'll make it M says which White just laughs off because he finds the whole situation very funny in that MI6 know nothing about us, he says, and the organisation that he's part of, and how they've always assumed that MI6 and the CIA have been listening in to everything, have been right behind their backs, but uh, they don't actually know they exist at all. So um, M says, well, they do now, and we're quick learners, which is a nice little line. And this is where you get uh, M saying, we have people everywhere. And then he says, am I right? And looks up. To Bond. No! Ah. <laughs> Mitchell! <laughs> Not Mitchell. He looks up to Mitchell and then Mitchell pulls out his gun and shoots. There was a bodyguard standing next to him and he goes to shoot M. He just misses though. And Bond obviously jumps on him and, and starts to grapple him. And in that, uh, he accidentally shoots his gun and, and shoots Mr. White, who falls to the ground and... Mitchell eventually gets away from Bond, and we do get this one quick, <laughs> we get this one quick shot of Bond turning around and seeing M just like shuffling off in the background. 
I don't know why I found that shot so funny. It's just this old lady making making a, a break for it. But yeah, M safe, everyone. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so just on that, uh, yeah, I guess just on this scene though, it's something that I find odd about it is the kind of the continuity here, where we ended the last film with Bond looking fabulous, capturing Mister White, and obviously he's not doing so well because of the chase. But M says the Bond at the beginning, you look like hell. When was the last time you slept? Which Bond kind of ignores. But it's like, oh no, he looked all right at the end of the last film and mm. he captured Mr. White. And we, we're we going straight from Casino Royale into this because, you know, he this was Italy and he was in Italy before. So he would have shoved Mr. White in the boot, started driving, and then they would have started chasing him, which leads into this. Like, like no time passed between the end of that film and this one. So this kind of thing that they're trying to set up, that Bond is like a man on the edge, and you don't know what's going to happen. It's like, I think that makes sense with what happened with Vesper, but the fact that literally no time has passed, and you ended the last film with such a big, like, it's James Bond, everybody, he's back just to then have this film be like, Bond, you look terrible. You're a man on the edge. I can't control you, Bond. It just feels a bit insincere, like they're trying to have their cake and eat it. So I didn't really buy this concept that Bond is not doing very well at the start of this film, even though really it does make sense that he probably wouldn't be doing very well. Yeah. I guess that's the problem with having that cool shot at the end of Casino Royale, isn't it? As good as it was. Uh, I don't know. You're right. You're right. They did... I mean, it's something that they sort of force on this film overall is uh, pushing Bond's, pushing Bond's like emotional state. But one of the, one of the complaints I actually have about this film is I don't really think it's it's always kind of said but not really told. Sorry, other way around. It's always told but never really seen or like shown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like straight off the bat, like M's like, oh, you look bad. I don't trust you, and it's all just a bit ham-fisted. Yeah, and because later in the film she talks about trust and it's it doesn't really tie back to any of this. So this is kind of, you know, they are trying to set up what this film's all about, which is Bond not doing too great. But yeah, I kind of agree. They don't, it's not really very natural and it seems like it jumps in and out when it wants to. So I guess initially it wants to be like, Bond's not doing great, but it's like, I just don't buy it. They don't do enough to sell that idea and probably having quantum of solace literally take place like 10 minutes after casino royale was probably a bad way of doing it they probably needed like a week to pass and then maybe i could have bought this a bit more it's a small thing at the end of the day but some sort of sense of time progressing i think would have really helped to separate these films out and the idea that bond has had a hellish week with mr white trying to get him across a country or something like that would have worked quite well yeah yeah that's true that had been really good, actually. Hmm. Oh, well. So, yeah, Mitchell's made a, a run for it uh, out of this this uh, safe house, and Bond is chasing him, and they're going through these uh, kind of... Well, at one point, it starts looking like a mine shaft. I don't know. Just underground tunnels, I guess. Um, and... Yeah, it's just very old tunnels, right? Like, just... Yeah. Because it's Italy, it's all very old country. So, yeah, something that was probably built, like, a thousand years ago. Yeah. And eventually Mitchell climbs upwards and Bond follows and they come out. This stone is kind of moved and they're right in the middle of the crowd, pretty much watching this horse race uh, right in the thick of it. And Mitchell runs off. Bond starts to chase after him. And 
idiot Mitchell tries to shoot Bond in the middle of this humongous crowd and obviously misses and hits this poor lady instead, this innocent woman. He was just watching a horse race. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> they come they... back to that later. Well, not super later, but it's like yeah. they show it happening and then they bugger off and then just cuts back to this woman dying. It's like, oh, that sucks. I know. They, they really wanted to put that point across, didn't they? Yeah. Well, that Mitchell killed a woman. I, like, what? Strange. Uh, they they eventually leave where this this kind of piazza horse race is going on and end up in another building and and run upstairs and <laughs> I just see my notes. Um, Mitchell runs up these stairs and kind of knocks into this this poor old lady, this poor old Italian granny, who's just pulling her fruit up on a pulley. And <laughs> that's all she it. was doing, people. It's, that's yeah, all she was and he doing. knocks he knocks into her so she she lets go and they drop and she smashes all of her cherries and she's oh. there looking down mamma mia <laughs> okay mitchell i can forgive shooting a random woman in the crowd and killing her but that old woman was planning a feast you've gone too far now she's not even like superman or anything she just starts talking in italian just like ah oh, no she's just so disappointed honestly what that hit, that that hit me <laughs> That hit me. <laughs> Thanks, Mitchell. <laughs> so they eventually make their way onto uh, the roof, uh, jumping over some buildings. It's a very beautiful setting, this, like, on top of all these terracotta roofs, and uh, they are sliding on all of these tiles that's on there. I think Bond tries to to jump and slides, and so he has to kind of force him to jump over to the other side of where these buildings are. So now he's basically, yeah, across from where Mitchell is running and... To do like to get back to him, he has to go through this home and back out the window. And perfect timing, there's a bus that comes past, so he jumps on top of the bus and uh, which kind of breaks really suddenly, so he nearly gets thrown off it. But he jumps back on, so back on the same side as where Mitchell is now. And eventually, they enter into a sort of bell tower. Both of them. Bond also is it Bond or is it Mitchell that starts ringing the bell as well? It's Maybe Bond who rings the bell. Yeah, I guess maybe just to. I don't know, make a scene. But um, yeah, so all these bells are ringing and uh, uh, at the top of it, Bond is looking out, see where Mitchell's gone and suddenly Mitchell's kind of like come comes through a corner and catches him off guard and uh, the two then fall downwards and they fall through this gigantic glass ceiling. It's actually quite an interesting shot because it's it reminded me of what they tried to do with Die Another Day where Jinx falls backwards and they kind of follow her as she goes down. But we said that one didn't really work. I think this one actually worked really well. Like I don't know. I, I, there's a mixture of CGI in there, for sure. But like yeah, the camera follows as they fall down and like they land on the scaffolding through this this building. I was actually quite impressed by that. Oh, I, I wasn't. Were you not? Oh, I, <laughs> I think I to me like it's that. like it was so blatantly CGI that I didn't like it. Oh. Like It might look better than Die Another Day, sure. But like in the middle of this scene with a lot of movement, it was just to me it was just too blatantly CGI. So it just stood out too much. There is some CGI in this film that they do get away with. There's some that they don't. For me, that one they just about get away with. Uh, but yeah, they enter inside. They they like smash down in this building on the scaffolding. This so inside this place is there's basically a um, a big kind of rebar or something at the top of this room uh which spins and like rope on it <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like it all happens very quickly like tom was saying so um oh yeah and also when they've landed they drop their guns so they're both armless at the moment 
but they they hang on to this rope that's spinning around basically and at one point they kind of collide into each other with the rope and start hitting each other and then some scaffolding more scaffolding falls and uh, falls onto the rope which causes them to like fly upwards because it's on a pulley as well so now they're at the top and they fall back down a little bit again well Mitchell does and and Bond gets his his ankle caught in a part of the rope so he's now upside down swinging around on this big mechanism and he lands just before the floor where he sees his gun is there that he dropped earlier so uh he's trying to grab his gun but he misses it and the thing's still swinging around Mitchell was now off this thing and he's going to grab his gun which has landed nearby just kind of teetering on the edge of this box and as Bond is swinging around closer and closer to his gun Mitchell was nearly getting his gun but it drops a little bit more so he he goes and grabs it um and pretty much at the same time you think Mitchell's going to shoot Bond but just at the last second obviously Bond grabs his gun spins around upside down and shoots Mitchell and it's like (laughs) it all happens very very quickly so if that didn't make any sense then don't blame me (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, it's just the exact same as the car chase at the beginning. And not all the action scenes are quite like this, which is what makes it so frustrating when you first put on this film. Because I was having an absolutely miserable time with this because it's almost comical the way... It it just feels like someone is fast-forwarding through all the action scenes, like on an old VHS. (laughs) Mm. I only want the talking bits. So someone's like, fast-forward to the beginning, it's like... bang, 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 bang. Okay, done. Mr. White, okay, we can watch the theme. All right, let's have a scene of them interrogating it. It's all nice and calm, everyone talking. Oh, Mitchell's run off! Fast forward. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> like, it just shifts gears so in- intensely, so rapidly. Like, the way it's paced with Mitchell first getting away, like, what happens is Mitchell kind of runs into a tower, he... He goes around the stairs, he goes through the window, and then Bond walks into the same tower, sees the window, and jumps down. But that takes place in about three seconds. All of that takes place in three seconds. Mm. It's Mitchell sees Mitchell goes down the stairs, <laughs> Mitchell jumps through the window, Bond comes in, Bond jumps out the window. Like that's how quick it happens. And this whole entire scene does that. Where with the car chase scene, it's bad and they shouldn't have done that. But with this one, it, it just seems so comical. It feels like Bond and Mitchell are just teleporting to different locations. And it just looks <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. But the idea is all sound enough. Like, you know, Mitchell, that great character, has portrayed Bond. A lot of emotional weight there, of course. Oh, yeah. As we've already established. Love Mitchell. <laughs> Love Mitchell. <laughs> but it just doesn't connect. It's just all the same problems. So... The, the last moment should have been quite cool. And I think the setting is really good. As mm. I think you already said, this old Italian town and the idea of them going into like, I want to say it's like a chapel is where they are at the end. Mm. Um, you know, the idea of them being in the scaffolded rundown chapel they're rebuilding and fighting and stuff. That's really cool. Like all these ideas are really good. It's just edited in such a way that you just, just like the car chase, I just can't attach to it. So by the time Bond and Mitchell has that moment, which should have been quite a cool moment, where they're both going for the gun, they grab it at the same time, but Bond fires first, and they're just staring upwards with the gun. That should have really been a cool moment, a cool way to end it off. It's just, it just isn't, because it's like, I just don't know what I just saw. It's just all too much. I, this is where I get very, very conflicted with this film, 
Like there's the the seeds are already starting to be sown because I don't know if we mentioned this already, but this is the shortest Bond film. It's 106 minutes. And you can really tell why that's the case when you watch it. And I think I and I I do like what that does to the film for many different scenes. But it's I think it's more scene to scene. I like where it, it kind of cuts the fluff in in the actual action scenes itself when they do this sort of thing and, and, and make it so fast. That's when it doesn't work, because, as you say, it does just seem like they're hopping all over the place. You don't know what's going on. So it's like I, I want to compliment a film for being quite tight in places but this is not the right way to do it so yeah yeah i think that's a good point the pacing of the film as a whole considering just how much they cram in here as you said it's the shortest bond film which means it's shorter than dr no <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's shorter than dr no people uh, but they cram a lot in and actually the pacing of it and all the different locations is pretty good but as you say when you look at these individual scenes they're just so quick that you just can't get any time with them. And they could have easily doubled the length of some of these and they would have felt much better and the film itself wouldn't have been bloated or felt too long or anything like that. It's just Wow, how often do we say that? I don't think we've ever said that in this podcast. Doesn't ring a bell. No. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. But no, you're right. So yeah, just to end off this bit, Bond goes back to the safe house and of course Mr. White's gone, just a pool of his blood left and that's it. And then we come back to the old woman trying oh, to save her cherries. <laughs> She's picking them up off the floor, blowing yeah. off the dust. <laughs> <laughs> no edits or cuts in that scene. They no. really take their time. Let it breathe. It's, one, it's a one-shotter, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that lady, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. So Mr. White has got away somehow, and Mitchell has been killed by Bond. So we cut to London, and we see a car driving through the rain and going near these flats... And we see M is on the balcony of one of these flats and she's she's standing on top of there and Bond enters the this block of flats, goes in, goes into the specific flat that M is at and meets up with M. And she's quite distraught by everything that just kind of happened here. And she's trying to say, like, I don't know how this happened. Mitchell worked for MI6 for eight years. We do a yearly lie detector test and he never failed. And I think she said she was he's like his she was her he sorry mitchell was her personal bodyguard for like three or five years something like that so Mm. someone that was very close mitchell um and and then she said there were presents around the like i gave him presents as well we were friends because they are in mitchell's flat so they know that mitchell was a traitor so they are now trying to find clues in his flat and this leads to m saying i'm annoyed or is annoyed at bond for killing him and but then she goes back into saying like who says that about having people everywhere like florists use that expression but nobody actually means it but whoever this organization is it's true i don't know in what situation florists say we have people everywhere but yeah i don't really get enough flowers to to back that up so em you're on your own there that's a good point actually her florist people might be pretty hardcore (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, oh yeah, think of what a gift she has to give out and everything. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that's a money penny job, surely. But she doesn't oh, have true. money penny. Ah. <laughs> See, this is what happens. Damn. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, Em is just very troubled. She was like, who is this organization? How do we know absolutely nothing about them? And yeah, seems a little bit distraught by this. And 
everything that's happening around them it, it's very much like a crime scene you've got people who are kind of in the classic like full body plastic thing trying to look for evidence i want to say there's like a woman who's almost starts crying oh really Do i i might is have that like, wrong. is that his girlfriend or something it could be i i feel like that's what they were going for but they never went back to it but i want to say one of them who's scrubbing the flat that you can't see their face just kind of breaks down a little bit but then they just cut away from it and never go back to it oh oh that's strange maybe i'm wrong but it's this film so i don't know <laughs> you, yeah you never know i really just don't know um so bond says that there's no trace of mr white they don't know where he went but he thinks that he's still alive and at this moment m gets a call and we hold on how does this work i think m gets a call but are they still in the flat or is this when they just cut to mi6 itself i think they just immediately cut to mi6 that's what i mean it's just straight to the next scene next yeah just so M gets the call and they cut to mi6 and there's tanner tanner has been recast and it's someone that i think we see in all the rest of the the daniel craig films but we have tanner talking to m about mitchell and it's just saying we can't find anything we took a look at his file and his history we like he's squeaky clean we can't find anything against the guy and then some like professor looking person uh joins them and he's saying, like, oh, we found something about the money that Mitchell had in his wallet. Because they were saying that Mitchell had, like, no money to his name, but he had a, a few hundred in his wallet. So they said they found something about the money that he had. And then they go into a room, and there's, like, a futuristic tech table. And he starts explaining how, for the sheaf, we tagged a load of bills to track or try and trace the uh, sheaf's operation. So there's a load of bills like associated to the sheaf. So they were using them to trace like where the money was going and how it was flowing. And they found a stack of bills that had the same tag used as the one that Mitchell had. And they were deposited to someone called Mr. Slate. And they're saying, I think they're saying that Slate returned from Heathrow this morning. But that doesn't make any sense because I guess Slate left Heathrow this morning. I guess so, yeah. So yeah, Slate has gone somebody and he's currently staying at a, a hotel. Oh, right. So I will say this is not edited in the same way as the action scenes. Um, as you said, it does cut between stuff quite quickly. Um, but this does have a little bit more time to breathe. And I do like the idea of M being like, what's going on? <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, is M actually being kind of maybe not scared is right but visibly distressed like very uncomfortable out of her comfort zone with this idea of just being surrounded now and where it hits so close to home for her yeah yeah like that's a really cool idea it's a shame that they went so heavy on this mitchell angle <laughs> thanks I, mitchell i don't know what else they could have done to be fair but i feel like them saying mitchell's name so early on in the film makes it feel a bit too comical where actually if they cut out that stuff initially and M just says, the man who did that was called Mitchell. He worked for me for eight years. Like, that would have been fine. Uh, because I think this in itself works quite well. Yeah. Yeah. It could have gone either way. To be fair, I like I found it quite funny, as you say. So <laughs> by the end, I was like, okay, Mitchell, everyone. Hey. <laughs> it's Mitchell. Um, so, yeah, again, it's it's all pretty good stuff. I don't really like what we get here with MI6. 
So they make a very deliberate effort in this film for like the set design of MI6 to make it like futuristic where all the walls are like white and they've got like lights on them as well. Like it looks like something from like iRobot or something. Like it's it doesn't look 2008. It looks like very deliberate futuristic and it's a big departure from what we've seen in the past, especially Casino Royale, which was more of that classic style and I don't mind them redesigning this stuff because considering how this is literally supposed to take place like the next day after Casino Royale, it's very bizarre that now we go to M and Tanner in a completely different type of building that looks absolutely nothing to what we saw in the last film. I hate this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, fair. I hate this. So this is what I touched on at the beginning with the menu. The menu looks like this table uh, interface that they use in this scene. And I know I shouldn't really care too much. It literally is just a table. They just use it to like spin around, like touch interactive to spin around a photo or two of Slate. But it really just gets under my skin. It's so unnecessary to be... If you watch Star Trek, it reminds me of the like computer interface on Star Trek because it's just gobbledygook. And I know like Hollywood does have that thing where they have just, you know, code on a, a screen or whatever. But it doesn't... You don't need that here. All that they're doing is showing a... Like, at one point, they have, like, one of the notes and it, like, scans around it. And it's just so silly. Oh, it really... It's unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's not a big part, right? It's tiny. But it it really just annoys me a lot. That's all I can say. Hmm. I mean, we do cut to MI6 a lot and they do go all in with this idea. I think the problem I have with it is that it just strips all the personality of MI6... And I think that's what makes Bond and MI6 within that universe feel more unique compared to anything else, where they still have all this futuristic stuff, but there's clearly like a spin on it and a charm to it. And it has a lot of personality and it's just something you don't get in any other spy film. But what we are literally seeing, you can see in a lot of other spy films and actually looks like something from a, a near future film not a current day one. And I don't buy MI6 as this super high-tech, hyper-futuristic place. I just don't think that's what it should be. So, yeah, having some screens and some tech in there, you want that. But it's not balanced out by anything that makes MI6 have its charm and personality. And you just get this, like, really sterile, flat, uninteresting kind of sets and locations. Yeah, it is sterile. It really is. I do wonder, like, so yeah, they, you're right because they just they they drop any sort of note of of legacy. I think with this, like, even when they redesigned M's office for Judy Dench, they they kept it very similar. They modernized it as we talked about, but they they it was recognizable, and and Money Penny's office as well. Whereas this this, as you say, it could just be anywhere. I am now beginning to think what this was probably very intentional, as in. Well, I, I don't know how artsy fartsy I want to get here, but like, w- was this meant to be a a contrast to where Bond is in most of the film, which is like very grotty places that are not that are not like that at all, and it's just like meant to separate them even more because the idea is that eventually Bond is kind of working against MI six. So is that there's probably an element there, but I still don't like it. Yeah, there could be. That's an interesting idea, but you could totally you could have totally done that without going as far as they did. Yes, yes. So yeah, so a little bit disappointing. And, you know, to be fair, the set design of this film, it does have quite a unique look. I'm not really saying that as a compliment. 
<laughs> but, oh, <laughs> but this doesn't really look like any other Bond film, and that's kind of interesting, I suppose. I can appreciate them kind of taking risk and have it kind of look a little bit different with its lighting and feel. I think it does make it stand out. I wouldn't say it's particularly good, but I guess I appreciate the effort. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose, well, we'll get into like all the locations we go to, but yeah, that's one of the things that really stood out to me is that it's just, it's a very... um no not dirty grungy (laughs) a grungy bond film i suppose Hmm. so now that we know where mr slate is who is someone who's i hopefully i explained that correct with the the bills and stuff it doesn't really matter (laughs) that much (laughs) they um do explain it quite quickly but yeah so they've been able to associate some dirty money with lachive that mitchell had to this mr slate so we see bond in the back of a car in a taxi it's somewhere very hot and then on screen it comes up Port or Prince in how do you say this? Howty? Howty? I think it's just Haiti. Haiti. Okay, that makes but, more sense. Yeah, I, I, this is kind of what I was referring to as well. Like, this is the stuff that I like. I really like where the guy in MI6 says, he's in room 325. Boom. <laughs> We're just there. We don't even get like the, the, the plane landing shot that we usually do. It's just Bond is there, ready to go. And I, I actually quite appreciated that. Maybe it's because we've watched so many Bond films that are quite long now. But yeah, this was just, uh, you don't lose anything by that. You just He's just there and uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, I agree with that. The traveling aspect is not the important part of the film. It's not important that Bond is arriving in these locations or anything. You just need to get Bond to these locations as he's investigating. So I think for this story, totally makes sense. Just cut that stuff, get us yeah. to the, the important bits. So Bond pays for a taxi and we get like this weird guitar version of the Bond theme here. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of the older Bond films when they would try and put the the country music on as a Bond theme. Like they kind of brought that back in a way. Yeah, I just felt like it's very strange because the last film didn't have the Bond theme in it at all until the end. And even in this one, they use it quite sparingly. So I kind of would have appreciated that this isn't what we heard. Like, I think it almost feels a little bit wasted that they did this weird version of it. I would have liked something maybe a little bit more traditional. If you're not going to use it that often, then I would rather it be a little bit more traditional rather than you're not going to use it that often and you're going to make these like weird versions of it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it really fits in with this this style of, well, Craig's film, especially this one with it being so revenge-based and... and kind of tougher like having these oh here's a here's a uh tropical version of the bond theme or here's a whatever version maybe maybe not the best use of it potentially no and i think now that they've opened the door for it just you know (laughs) come on just give us some bond theme (laughs) not this so bond goes into a hotel and it's a quite a run-down hotel. It, this is somewhere very hot, very tropical, and it's like a old run-down hotel. So he goes upstairs, he knows where he's heading, he's going to 325. So he knocks on the door, no one answers, so he gets like a credit card out and breaks the lock, and he walks in and no one's in, and he kind of starts walking around a little bit, and we see a shot of a knife being pulled out. Bond doesn't see this, but we get a little shot of a knife being pulled and a man attacks Bond behind these, like, glass doors. But they're, like, yellowy, goldy glass. It's, like, quite old, somewhat tacky glass. It's, like, the room is separated by these big glass panels, actually. I guess it's less of a door than these panels. So he smashes through, 
and there's a fist fight back and forth between Bond. Um, I didn't really write much about this because it's so it's once again edited very quick. It's a it's meant to be quite a brutal fight. You just don't really see much of it, so it really just results in them punching back and forwards. And the man gets his neck sliced. I'm not too sure if Bond does that intentionally or if it's just part of what happens in the fight. And Bond stabs him, and he struggles for a little bit, holding his neck, and then just dies. And you just see him a bit of blood on the floor, and his his corpse is just there. And Bond has been injured as well. He was he was cut. So he goes into the cupboard, he gets some clothes, he like rips up a shirt or something, wraps up his wound on his arm, and then he puts on a jacket, and then it cuts back to the body on the floor, and Bond leaves. And this is supposed to be setting up this idea of Bond just being this murderer who was just leaving a load of bodies in his wake, which is a good idea, and it follows on from Casino Royale, so very smart. I think that makes sense. Let's go into this a little bit more. But I just didn't feel this one at all. And it probably was because of the editing as well. But this felt like it should have been a more... This is what like Martin Campbell excels at. These personal one-on-one fights. But Mark Foster's like wacky editing style means that once again, it's just Bond just like, oh, he's fighting someone. Oh, oh, oh he's dead. Okay, <laughs> I was leaving. All right. Yeah. It's almost as if the, the fight is so quick... But then they they do hang on that scene where he's dying because you like you actually see him die because he's holding his neck where he got stabbed in the neck. It's almost like they wanted the really quick fight scene out of the way, but they also wanted you to feel something there. And I don't really think those come those don't really work together. I I as you say I don't I I like what they're trying to do here, where it is just a trail of bodies that Bond is leaving, and and this I think the speed could have worked with that, but. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't hate it. But yeah, I do I I see where you're coming from. Like yeah, it's, it's just whatever that balance needs to be, I just don't think they reached it. And I agree with you, it could have been quick. But again, it comes down to the fight itself isn't that quick. It's just edited to be really quick, which it fills off. But if it was just Bond being attacked and then quickly stabs the guy and then we just like it slows down to see him die, that would work. But I think this is supposed to be quite a bloody back and forth between the two because Bond gets injured as well and you spend time on him wrapping his wound. I didn't even realise that until he starts wrapping his wound, I didn't even see him get hit. Like, that's the thing. No. <laughs> but again, this is what Martin Campbell's really good at and it's something that Mark Foster is obviously not his strength. So what they wrote was a quite bloody one-on-one fight. But what we got was just like a clip show of it. And then just like, look at this corpse. Isn't that sad? It was like, well, I guess so. Is that Mitchell? <laughs> if it's not about Mitchell, I'm not interested. If it's not Mitchell or the granny, I don't care. <laughs> they should have just cut back to the cherry tomatoes on the ground. Like, oh! Right, throughout the whole film. Yeah, just, just slowly picking up the cherry. Whenever they want you to feel sad, just cut back to that woman still there. <laughs> sorting her cherry tomatoes out <laughs> oh all right that's another edit we'll need to do then Add it yeah to we'll the get list. that sorted so yeah so the man is dead uh, as as joe said you see a little bit of a footage of him as bond kind of leaves they do cut back to it which again i think that's a really nice idea it's just a shame that it doesn't really hold any weight um due to how the rest of it is edited 
So Bond goes to the front desk of the hotel and asks, does room 325 have any messages? And the woman says no. The only message was about a briefcase from earlier. And she's like, we're still holding that. Do you want to take it? And Bond's like, sure, I'll take that now. Um, So he walks outside with his case. And as he goes outside, a woman in like a... Could you call it gold, this car? Oh. I don't think it's quite yellow. No, it's quite dusty, isn't it? So I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's it's quite a distinct colour. It's like not quite gold, not quite yellow, a bit dusty. Uh, but a woman pulls up in the car and shouts to get in. And Bond's just like, okay. So Bond gets in the car and she starts saying, you're late, where were you? And Bond says, sorry, I was uh, in a meeting uh, with a friend of Mr. White. She just says, I don't know who that is. And she mentions to Bond that she's, he's a geologist. Um, and she was like, I don't think they look like you do. Um, and then I think they, he's like, look so, like, what do you mean? What do you think they should look like? Um, but they don't get an answer to that. And we see a man is following them on the bike. And she's like, is that friends of yours? And Bond just says, I don't have any friends. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> I only had one friend, Mitchell. <laughs> and he's dead. And then she goes, oh, yeah, Mitchell. Yeah, how is he doing? It's like, stop the car. <laughs> I need some time alone. <laughs> you you can't be driving when you hear this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so Bond's like, nothing to do with me. I don't have any friends. Sad face. Uh, so she burns off. She quickly goes through the street. And she goes through, like, a not an intersection. That's too American. Or a crossroads. There we go. And that kind of causes some people to crash. Not a big crash, no explosions, but a couple of people collide and the guy on the bike struggles to get past. And at this point, I put like, what the hell is this music? Because uh, oh. they, they start playing what I can only describe as fun horns. Like it gets oh. oddly like upbeat. Well, not upbeat, but just like, yeah, I just it was very confusing music choices for this. I did not catch the fun horns. Oh, that's a shame. Oh. Uh, but yeah so she gets away like because of the crash she manages to get away she parks up in an alleyway and they start saying about how oh we didn't agree a price for the job and she says well let's talk about it later over drinks and she then says did dominique give you any trouble so like hmm dominique hmm. but bond at this point opens the briefcase and there's a picture of the woman on a piece of paper and she's all like, what the hell is this? Um, and also there's a piece of paper there which she um, Bond gives to the woman and she's like, what the hell is this? Um, and there's a gun in there and Bond's like, well, it looks like somebody's trying to kill you. <laughs> so so she grabs the gun, Bond like pushes her and it fires, uh, which doesn't hit anyone. And Bond like jumps out and she drives off. I, I think that's what happens. It's a bit clumsily put together. I think Bond intentionally drive, like jumps out. I don't think she shoves him out. Or maybe she does. I'm not sure. And Bond, the car drives away and Bond says, the, the classic line, that wasn't very nice. Is that the classic line? Well, th- that's what I didn't get. Like, it's almost presented like it's meant to be a quip. Like, it's supposed to be like, oh, I've been kicked out. And Bond's like, that wasn't very nice. Like, it, it was almost presented that way. But if Roger Moore said it, I would have believed it. But Daniel Craig being like, that wasn't very nice. Like, hmm. Yeah, some of Craig's dialogue in this film is, especially those kind of one-liners, aren't great. 
And I'm going to say that maybe is a fault of the uh, <laughs> the writer's stuff, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, there's some things that you can definitely point to with the writer's stroke. And yeah, you can tell they just wanted a quip. They just needed a quip here, but they just didn't have one. So I'm assuming yeah. someone just put that wasn't very nice as a placeholder. And then they didn't have any writers and no one on the day thought of anything. So Craig just stares and stands in the middle of the road saying, that wasn't very nice. Cole Bond. Oh, classic Bond like. and his wit. <laughs> Always got a lie for everything. Mitchell would have said something better. Uh, yeah. Oh. Sorry, I'll drop Mitchell now. He's dead to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the man on the bike goes up to Bond and says, you were meant to shoot her. And he says, well, I missed. So Bond slaps the bike handles, which causes the bike to flip up and it knocks the guy off. And then he knocks out the, the guy on the bike and... He then grabs the bike and, and drives off. So I guess a decent little scene. I think the biggest problem with it is, as we've already said, the dialogue is just kind of a little bit off. But it's not really yeah. that bad. It's just, yeah, some dialogue that just feels very first draft for some reason. That's that's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. I, I did like the idea of... I like seeing Bond in this situation where he's just on, just like flying by the seat of his pants, I suppose, like making things up, going with the flow of it. You know, everything she says, he's got a, a line back to that kind of flips it back to her. So I quite like that. Um, and I, I like this this character that we do see is obviously one of the main characters in the film. And I think like a, a quite a powerful entrance, like her just like, get in sort of thing. But yeah, a lot of the dialogue, I think. Well, hmm, I don't know, actually. Maybe it's just that last line I was thinking of, but... It, it's okay. Also, by the way, I was completely wrong about the car when I said it was dusty. I was I was thinking of the car she drives later on. Oh, right. <laughs> Which is an old car. That's why I said dusty. So if anyone wondering why I said that, I was wrong. Don't worry. Well, it is an old car. It might be the same one. It just gets oh, dusty. Really? Okay, maybe. Yeah, I feel like she has her own distinct car in this film. Okay. Or maybe it's just, I, I don't know. But but So yeah, so that's that scene. But yeah, as you, actually, as you say, the dialogue between this woman... Um, who we find out more about later, and Bond. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. They're back and forth, and I agree the the idea of Bond just throwing himself in this situation and going with it is quite entertaining. This was yeah. probably a good opportunity for some cheeky Bond, but we unfortunately don't quite get that. Cheeky Bond, no. We, we Yeah, we start to see, I suppose, but uh, oh well. Yeah. So we cut to London. And we see Tanner and M in MI6 doing a little bit of walking and talking. Um, and then M is saying how Bond is approaching the docks. So apparently Bond is heading towards the docks. Um, so they call Bond. And then it's like Tanner is talking to Bond on the phone, who is then next to M. And Tanner is like relaying, like telling M what's going on. Because now they're in their office. So Bond says Slate was a dead end. And Tanner says that, and M's like, damn it, he killed him. And then Bond is casually driving on the bike that he stole. I think that's about it for the M and Tanner stuff. I think that's all that really yeah. was. M and Tanner, Tanner spend a lot of time together this film, but they're often quite short scenes like this. Yeah, that that's all that was, just reporting that end, which I really don't think you needed, but anyway. So Bond is following the gold car, the one that the woman was in, and she arrives at a dock... And 
Well, she gets out of the car, right, arrives at the door, gets out of the car, goes up to this gate where there's this man guiding it, and she just walks through. And she's all like, let her through, let her through. And Bond comes in second and drives past the gate quite slowly, taking a look around and parks up nearby. And the woman storms up to somebody who has a terrible haircut. Um, oh, yes. Oh, goodness, yes. I don't, what was that? What was the, that? It's a bowl cut, right? It looks like a monk. Yeah. Like, my notes see was Monk Man. <laughs> <laughs> monk Man. I didn't know. Mine yeah. was um, Haircut Man. Haircut Man, yeah. Because he has a haircut. He probably has a name, but I don't care. <laughs> he does. It's like, when you see this guy with this terrible haircut about what you assume is where the villains are, because this looks very villainy, you'll be like, oh, that's the henchman. But nope. <laughs> it's just a guy with a bad haircut that hangs out. Imagine, well... Well, it depends how you class a henchman, though, because he is in the film quite a lot. He is, but he doesn't do anything. He's not very threatening. <laughs> not with that haircut, anyway. He doesn't really... Well, he does have a name, but I don't think you ever hear it. And he never fights Bond, or even the Bond girl, this woman. He doesn't fight yeah. anyone. He's just there. He's just there. Oh, so, so she storms past Bad Haircut Man and goes up to somebody else on a table. A, a different man who's sitting down and he's all like, Oh, it's, it's nice to see you. And she's all annoyed, saying like, oh, alive, you mean? And he basically confirms that he was the one who ordered the hit. And she gets all very mad about it and saying, oh, I was, all I was trying to do was trying to help you. And this man says, oh, don't talk to me like I'm stupid. It's it's very unattractive. And I think at this point we get confirmed this is Dominique. Um, so I'm going to just say his full name, Dominic Green. Because um, I think I'm going to call him Green throughout this. I don't know if you have a preference, if we should say Dominique or Green. But I went with hear Green. Both. Yeah, I went with green because it was shorter to type. Smart, very <laughs> yeah. smart. I I initially started with Dominique, but I started writing the version that has like a Q in it, but I Still think fancy. his version doesn't. <laughs> you went extra. <laughs> yeah, so I did switch to green. But but yeah, this is Dominic Green. Um, so Green kind of holds her hands and or she's like, I want to so or she, he's like, I want to show you something, holds her hand and they start walking around the dock and Green starts explaining how, oh, I hate when people talk about me behind my back it it's like ants all over my body and they go up to the water and they look down and they see a corpse in the water and i think dominic says like oh he was one of my best geologists and she's like was that him was that the man that you just saw and she's like oh i didn't i didn't get to see him i didn't get to i don't know what he looks like um but dominic is saying how she tried to buy information about him but she's all like, no, 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 this man tried to sell information to me. And then she's all like, if I was lying about that, about betraying you, why would I come back? And they hug. And she's all like, I was doing it for you. I was doing it to help you. But Green very obviously isn't buying it and says you're a liar as they're hugging. And then I think at this point, the general shows up. And I think Green says like, you're only sleeping with me to get to this general, this dictator character. Um, and at this point, a boat pulls up nearby with the general on it, and she's quite poorly active, to be honest. She's like, hmm, the general? Is that him? And just like blatantly <laughs> looks around, not even trying to hide it. <laughs> I don't know if that was deliberate. I don't know if they said, we need you to show that you clearly have a strong interest in the general, so act like it when he mentions the general might be nearby. But it's a very clumsy uh, line there. But the idea that she's still trying to hide it from him. No, like the idea that she almost isn't hiding it from him. 
or is she supposed to be trying to hide it? Because she just so obviously just starts looking around like a, I don't know, like a cat when you bring the food out and she starts twitching. <laughs> <laughs> she just does that. Uh, there is um, one thing. So when they go up to, when he goes up to show you the body, the geologist that's been drowned, he starts to tell this story because he hates people talking behind his back, he was saying, and it feels like ants all over his body. And he starts to talk about his music teacher or like piano teacher that did this like something similar to him when he was younger. And it feels like they were trying to do this kind of really imposing, oh, this guy's this guy's crazy sort of thing, which kind of doesn't really go anywhere because he starts to say, well, he says, I got an iron and then just stops talking about the story. I guess it's like you're meant to meant to just have the rest in your uh, with your imagination. But it really does not work with this character. Like this guy does cannot pull off that sort of. And also, it's just the wrong setting for that as well. Like as they're walking, it just really seemed clumsy. I I phased out. Yeah, yeah. Like, I wrote what I had to for the notes just so I could explain it just then. But I just phased out because we're trying to be introduced to these two characters who we got Dominic Green, and I don't think we find out the woman's, the woman's name yet, or have we? I can't remember if he says Camille. I think he might have said that at the beginning. He might have done, but if he did, I missed it. So this is Camille, the Bond girl, and this is Dominic Green, the villain, which is quite obvious, like, even though he's not, like, visually distinct, the way he talks and the way he acts, you're just like, yeah, that's the villain. That's our guy for this film. And, yeah, it's almost like they're trying to do so much in this scene where they have to try and, like, build up her character and build up his character and then build up this, like, relationship that they have, which never sat right to me, this relationship thing where he's always talking about sleeping with her. And I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of gross, dude. You, 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 I don't want to hear that from you. Um, but, yeah, it's it's maybe like this scene is trying to do too much, um, trying to ram all this stuff in. And I do also agree, yeah, this intimidating story that he tells... I totally get why for a Bond film and a Bond villain, when it's their first scene, you would have him describe this sort of situation. But it's just like, I just don't care. And it's almost like the film doesn't care because it just kind of, the camera's not really focusing on him. It's focusing on them like holding hands, walking around the dock. And just just rabbiting on about his music teacher. <laughs> yeah, it's really... Like you say, the the idea is there, and I think it's something that they pull off far more successfully with um, Silver in the next film, where they have they. If you're going to do this sort of thing, where you're going to tell a, a unsettling story and try to make the villain look like a villain, really go all in for it, like that. You know, where you have the one the long shot in Skyfall. Don't do it like this, where they're literally just walking across to the edge of a, a port, and you're not even really paying too much attention to what he's even saying anyway. It's not good. Yeah, like, give that actor a chance to pull it off. Like, yeah. Let them do it. Don't yeah. just have them do this. And But yeah, I think you're just thinking about too many other things because at this point, you don't know who this woman is. You don't really know who this man is. And you're just trying to connect too many threads, I think. Whereas you say with other ones, they focus on just the villain, get that introduced, so then put in other elements. This is just like, I just can't really connect with any of these sort of elements because it's, it's just kind of too much. Um to cram in for this sort of scene it's too much to cram in for this film <laughs> yeah it's very ambitious for what it does with how we've already described the the runtime and the speed they still try to cram in just as much as a, as a regular bond film and i think that's probably where it 
these sort of scenes fail because, yeah, they're just doing too much at one point and you can't focus on any one thing very well. So, yeah, as the dictator comes in, uh, the general, the uh, green goes to, says to introduce, they're going to go introduce him um, to Camille. And with that, we see that Bond has been, you know, has been outside this whole time on his bike, watching the whole thing uh, play out. And so he goes up to the gate where the the worker is and he gives them a business card and says, uh, give this to the woman and uh, tell her to call me. Then just kind of walks back a little bit. And the, <laughs> did you ever, do you know what his actual name is? Oh, the, on the card? The, no, the, um, the haircut man. Oh, haircut man. No. Oh, okay. I'll call him Haircut Man then. Um, <laughs> Haircut Man comes over and, and asks what's going on, like what's his card, and we get the shot of what it is, and it's a, a Universal Exports business card. So that's back. And instead of giving it to the woman, he just calls it himself to see what's going on, and it goes straight to uh, an answer phone, answer machine of, of Universal Exports. But we see that Bond is actually it's all a bit of a setup for Bond to be able to now track that phone because of it being linked into his one and MI6 malarkey. So that's now on on his tracker. And then we when go the back to... the bloody hell did that happen? <laughs> huh? I know you can't do the Q scene because you haven't brought Q back in, but when the bloody hell did he get like a car tracker device that's linked to his phone? It feels so, it feels so off. To be fair, they do so much with his phone now. It's just it's something I moaned about in the games when <laughs> they replaced all the gadgets with a phone. But it is true. Like, it's just all here. It's just cheap. It's like the main thing that he uses now is just tracking, isn't it? Yeah. But I feel like in Casino Royale, I brought it a little bit more. But this feels like it. they pulled it out so out of nowhere just because Bond needs to track it. And they're like, well, how can we do that in a cool way with his phone? And it just happens that Bond has business cards for universal exports that have a tracker in it 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 just didn't sit right like this is him clearly using a gadget but it feels too much like an mi6q gadget to just be like something that maybe he would just have and it it made me like almost not really understand what was happening on at first Uh, but then later on it's like oh right that card is a tracker gadget thing right oh no i I don't think it is that is it not no see i think because yeah, that would be silly because they would just chuck the card away, surely. I think it's basically just by calling, by him calling Bond's phone, that's now got a link that they can track with because of their oh, intelligence. Oh, so he's tracking the phone? Yeah. Oh. Not very right. interesting, but... <laughs> I I guess that's better. I, I just completely missed that. I don't know how... They don't really explain it either way. But I always assumed that it was a bug inside the card. <laughs> I mean, I like that idea more. It's definitely more gadgety. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. I guess that's a bit better. But yeah, they don't really explain that at all. So I missed that entirely. If all it was that Bond just needed someone to call him. Yeah, like a connection, I guess, is, is the idea behind it. But like Dominic Green is a public figure. Like, surely they... I don't, I, let's, let's move on from this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Green goes and meets... Medrano, the disposed dictator of Bolivia, um, is this very, I mean, he does look exactly like that. He's got, got a big mustache and he's got, is he wearing like the hat, the dictator hat here? Maybe, I can't remember. Um, what do I even mean by dictator hat? I'm not sure I know I the one you that. mean though, the, <laughs> the Cuba guy. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, no offense to anyone who wears those hats. You know, you're not a dictator. You you, you can pull it off. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, Madrano's there, and he's talking about, uh, or he's asking Green about, can, uh, can you really do what you you say you can do? You you and your organization. And Green goes on to say that, yep, they they have all they have loads of power to affect countries and and the governments behind them, um, like here in Haiti, for example. And he gives this little brief story about how sided with the corporations to remove the government there because they they had the cheek to raise minimum wage, which all the corporations and the t-shirt factories didn't like. So yeah, they have the ability to overthrow governments, basically, is what he's describing. Um, friends in high places and all that. And that they've already started that process in Bolivia. It says there's 26 countries ready to recognise a new government under Medrano, and that can all be done within a week. And so the uh, Medrano says, well, what do you want in return for all of this? And Green brings out a map on a bit of paper, and he wants a, uh, a piece of the desert in Bolivia. Worthless piece of land, according to Medrano, because he's thinking they, they are going to want it for oil which he says there's none there. But Green doesn't really care about this. He says it's whatever we find there, we own, basically, is their end of the bargain. So it's at this point where Green uh, looks over and sees Camille and actually introduces Medrano to her. And this is where we learn that Medrano knew of her father and because it, he was involved in, in the army or something like that in Bolivia. And uh, Green says that uh, he can consider her something to sweeten the deal, which is kind of gross, but, you know, that's probably what happens with this sort of stuff. Um, So Medrano goes and speaks straight to Camille and says directly to her that uh, he knew her father and that... Oh, no, sorry, he knew her family and that he believes he was the last person to see them alive. And this is all in Spanish. Uh, You're getting getting this on screen, um, subtitled... Um, but she's obviously, she's acting very, uh, I think there's definitely some sort of restraint you can sort of maybe tell. She's not really being very friendly because she knows the situation she's in. But um, yeah, so as he says that, Green says, be careful what you wish for to her because uh, he sort of knows what she's after as well. And she is taken onto the general's boat. Yeah, it's another case of like one too, thing, one too many things kind of going on here because they're, they're trying to flesh out green storyline and camille storyline at the same time yeah and it's easy to not focus on one or not the other because the whole point is that green is going to help this general get into power with bolivia he just wants some land and it's like <laughs> that that line delivery i thought was so off where the general's like that land is worthless there's no oil there and greens were like maybe maybe <laughs> not oh <laughs> uh, i yeah i sometimes i'm quite unsure about green because on on the whole, I don't really like him, but I, I do like some of the way that he says things. He says things in a very strange way, a very, very, uh, yeah, it's like off-putting way. Yeah, like, there's just no need for it. But I think the line itself will be like, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone could have pulled that off. It's... <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but yeah, like, but the whole thing here with Camille is that she wants revenge in the general. And a lot of what Green and her were talking about is how she was like using him to get to the general. And that's kind of why he's mad. Or maybe he's not mad about that. Their relationship's a bit weird. So it's, yeah, it's this very awkward triangle that we're just seeing play out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and as Camille was put on the boat, on uh, Majano's uh, speedboat, Bond has been watching all of this still. He's still there uh, on his on his bike. So he uh, starts to chase after the boat and drives over some and uh, like obviously alongside the port where they're at. And he eventually just steals uh, a motorboat and starts to chase after him on the water. There's a lot of chases in this film and a lot of different vehicle methods as well. Like we've already had a car one. We've had one on foot. Now we're going to have a boat one as well um, because he just goes and charges his boat straight into the side of Madrano's, which causes everyone or a lot of people to kind of knock over, including Camille and Madrano on board. Um, and in that moment, she has time to bring out her gun and is just about to shoot the the general. But just before she is, or just before she can, she's grabbed by Bond, who has jumped on, and, and he grabs her, and they jump onto, I guess it's a different boat <laughs> that just happens to be nearby. I don't know, I think it looks different. So yeah, they're now on another boat getting away, chased by some of Madrano's men, who are in another boat. Uh, lots of boats. And Camille is, is talking to Bond, or well, shouting at Bond, um, why did you do that? Take me back. Because as, as Tom says, she wants revenge. She was just about to kill him. And they're getting shot at by all these people behind him. And he doesn't really, don't really think he says much back, but tells her to get down. Um, they get sideswiped by another boat. and More machine gun fire. I think one boat kind of comes up to him and Camille like whacks someone with a, a a bar or something as it goes past. And she's now in charge of navigating. Uh, Bond's obviously steering. There's this very angry version of like the, the no, uh, not No Time to Die, Another Way to Die kind of guitar riff here. Very angry as Bond charges into another boat to get rid of it. And then he jumps over one and another boat. Lots of boats, lots of explosions. There's one... <laughs> Then there's this boat that comes out. How many times have I said boat? Um, that comes up behind them and like just kind of mounts them. It just comes up and actually knocks out Camille because it hits her. And this is where Bond... I don't really know exactly what happens here because it is all very quick. But Bond grabs like a hook and throws it onto this boat behind them, which I guess sort of gets trapped and causes it to flip because it like does this huge flip backwards and... That's enough for him to actually get away from it all. It's a very, very fast action scene. I got no idea. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you just It's edited in the same way. I think it is getting a little bit better. Mm. I don't think it's quite as crazy as the first two, but it's still that same sort of thing. And yeah, I don't know what happened with that. And it's weird because that's like the ending bit. That's like the cool moment where Bond is able to get away because he did this hook thing on the speedboat. And you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, he did it. And now he's free because everything then calms down. But just like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> That's Yeah, it really takes away when you, when you don't even know. I, I can't tell you the amount of times I had to rewind and, and rewatch things in this film just to see if it was something I just blinked and missed or if it was still hard to understand. This is one where I, I rewatched and I was like, I still don't get it. It's just, there's a hook and it flips. I no. guess that's cool. All right, fine. But there is a <laughs> terrible line during all of this because there's like, uh, Camille is trying to like take control of stuff and Bond's like, no, stop it. But at one point, I think when Bond grabs Camille to start with, and I hope I got this line wrong, but you didn't mention it, so I'm not sure if you picked up on it. Oh no. Where she's all like, you're not one of Green's, speaking about Dominic Green, 
And Bond's like, well, you're a bit green. <laughs> because as a rookie, I guess, she's a bit green. Is that really? I Yeah, I did not catch that. That's what I wrote down. I hope that's not what it was. I can look up the script. <laughs> Let's get some script checking right now. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to help. It didn't help last time with your eyes only. Oh, but yeah. I'm pretty oh. sure that's what I wrote down. And I'm You're... pretty sure that was, that's like what gets said between the two. There is a lot of lines in this film that I didn't... I. I had to turn on subtitles to try and understand because there was a lot of mumbling. So it could well have been. I, I, now you said it, I recognise the you're not one of Green's men, but I don't know what he said back to her. Yeah, because there's a lot of things in this scene where it's... Um, oh, no, I got it wrong. <laughs> um, according to this script, anyway, it says you're not one of Green's and then Bond just says Dominic Green, apparently. And then oh. just says get down. Oh. Which is a lot better, but also seems a bit awkward dialogue-wise for Bond to be like, Dominic Green, you say? Hmm. Ugh. Yeah, not not the right not the right moment to uh to, t- to be checking that, I think. <laughs> well, I guess I'm glad I'm wrong. I guess I so. But yeah, very oh, <laughs> very off. But like this film does it a lot, oddly. Like a lot of there are a lot of times where like they just dub over like lines from bonds yeah and they just don't really fit there's one really bad one that i will for sure be bringing up later on because it's just terrible mm. you have to wait and see oh <laughs> stay tuned uh so after that bond um in the boat drives back to the docks it does focus on this quite a lot just a lot of like in all the the speediness it then has a lot of shots of bond just just on the boat looking angry for a while and it picks and chooses its moments to slow down i guess um but yeah he gets onto the the dock and uh has camille's body in his arms because she's still knocked out from the the knock and just hands it to one of the workers there and says that she's feeling seasick so um that's her and actually we don't really see her for a while now that's her done for a little bit and bond then walks off because he's now still tracking the phone because of the guy rang the number on the business card. And or, or the business card itself. Or the business card itself. Maybe. Uh, and just steals a car. This is another thing where Bond is just stealing every vehicle in this because I guess he doesn't really have much help. So he just steals a car nearby. And you get some shots of him driving through, tracking wherever they're going, Green and his men are going. Yeah, you get these shots of like, I guess... Haiti and some of the streets in Haiti it's looking very run down obviously it's like stray dogs everywhere and very unglamorous so yeah like it's it's not a uh, a lot of places that that bond goes to the bahamas and things like that it's all very sexy and rich and and speedboats and everything and i guess there were some boats there but like yeah you're, you're they're definitely pointing out that this is uh, definitely not the case here which i guess is also why i was saying about how like it looks so different to what we'd seen before in MI6, for example. But um, speaking of MI6, Bond rings them up and Tanner is there in an office with M. I, don't, I hope it's not M's office now, but... Uh... <laughs> I think it might be, actually. Oh. I think it's just the only place we see her for the film. Oh, so yeah, it's just more of that, like, sterile white rooms, but it's got a gigantic screen on the wall. And uh, Bond... Is talking to Tanner and asks for a name check of Dominic Green. 
And so okay, to- that makes sense then. Like he almost certainly did. That's probably why he said Dominic Green during that scene. Why they dubbed it over with him shouting Dominic Green, even though it's hard to hear. Just so we know that Bond knows the name. So what did she say in the in the car? Did she just say Dominic? So maybe he was getting the last name. Yeah, I think he just said Dominic. So I guess it's meant uh, to be him putting it together. Okay. <laughs> but he is a like Dominic Green in this world is like we're about to find out a very like famous person, like a very known figure. So I feel like Bond would have just seen him and be like, "Well, that's Dominic Green. I mm. know that man." Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, Alfred name check on Green, and the big computer wall starts to scan through MI6's database. And as it's doing that, M asks about. Uh, I wrote down Slade, <laughs> the band. No, it's not Slade. Slate oh. uh, asks about Slate and gets angry because uh, you killed him, didn't you? And uh, yeah, obviously you did. We do find out that yeah, Green, as you say, is a well-known person. He is uh, the head of the Green Planet Company, which is a utility company and also does charity work and it buys up land for. Ecological preserves is what Tanner says, and um, they send over a photo to Bond, and he confirms, yep, that's him. And they go to find out more about Green, but Tanner says that there's a a firewall around the extra information. And uh, so the only way to get more is to talk to the CIA. They have to connect through to the Americans. And they do that very quickly. Uh, It's all happening on screen. You're seeing who they're talking to and everything. It's all very visually laid out. And they get connected to this woman who then transfers them to someone called Gregory Beam. And it's at this point where you actually you see who this man is because you saw a little photo of him on the screen and it cuts to him and he's on a, a private jet. He's looking very dapper in this private jet. Well, actually, he himself isn't, but the jet looks nice. And uh, he's got this like... That's, I didn't even realise that David Harbour was in this film. I did not recognise him. No, I didn't remember at that all. at all. And then I saw him in the credits and I thought, oh yeah, that must be in them. Um, got this big moustache. But uh, he's there and he's not alone. He's with Felix. Ooh. Felix is back. Uh, moody Felix. Very though. moody. Yeah. It's a brand new Felix. Story of his life. <laughs> now, Felix, now, now you're feeling annoyed. Can you give me annoyed? Okay, just hold that for the next, like, for the, for the whole film. <laughs> it'd, be funny if, it'd be funny if it's like, no, I can't. Uh, how? <laughs> <It's> like, no. <laughs> can't do yeah. Um, so on this plane, they're talking to, um, uh, I've already forgot his name, Beam, Gregory Beam. And he responds saying, nope, CIA, they have no interest in green. Sorry, can't help you sort of thing. And, and just shuts down the phone call very quickly, which M, because she's a smart one, she, uh, she realizes that green must be a person of extreme interest from that. Uh, Tanner questions this, but she says, well, they were connected straight through to the chief section or the sec- the section chief of South America in the CIA. So uh, with that, there must be some interest in Green on their part. They must be tracking him or doing something along those lines. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done that. And I feel uh, bad for Tanner in this scene because they just make him look like such a, yeah. well, I put a Muppet. Muppet. Because <laughs> <laughs> M's like, oh, OK, then I guess they have extreme interest in him. But obviously somebody has to be like, what do you mean, M? <laughs> Please explain. And poor Tanner, even though he's like MI6, like chief of staff, Tanner has to be like, but he said they didn't have interest. What? 
Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> well, he doesn't say that, but he does say, but he said on the phone that they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they cut him off. It does. It makes him look so stupid. It makes him look quite lame there. So, uh, yeah. Poor Tanner. <laughs> uh, and we're back at Bond, who is driving to an airfield, uh, still tracking him and tracking Green and uh, Haircut Man. And he spots the plane that they're pulling up to and the to tail number on it. So he says that over to uh, to Tanner and they can find out that it's a, a private flight to Brigens in Austria. And with that, M says, you know, I'll sort out, sort out a flight for Bond and to, to Brigens, the same place. And also uh, try to avoid killing all possible leads because she's talking to Bond as well now. She's tried to kill, avoid killing all possible leads, Bond and... He says, I'll try my best, to which she replies, I've heard that one before. I've heard that one before. Oof, what, what is he like, eh? <laughs> but Bond said he wouldn't kill anyone, said Tanner. So no, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> oh, they did, they did Tanner a bit dirty here. I think he gets a bit better later on, poor guy. Yeah, he's fine. He fits that role of assistant to him. But, yeah. but one small thing, did you um, take a look at Bond's profile when it was on the screen? Uh, when was it? Uh, what, on the big screen? Yeah, because they're calling Bond, they bring up his information. Oh, well, no, I didn't see that. What was it? Anything interesting? There wasn't that much information. Uh, there wasn't that much there. They were like, he's white and a male. It's like, good stuff. Um, but they said his birthday was the 13th of April, 1968. Oh. Which I looked it up. That's not Daniel Craig's birthday. He was born in March, 1968. So I don't know what the significance of April 13th is. If they just wanted that to be like different, or maybe that's Friday the thirteenth potentially. I don't know. Maybe it's um some date related to wait with nineteen sixty eight. Did you say? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. There's no Bond film that year. Maybe there's a. I don't know. There would have been any books by that point either. I don't know. Maybe the month. Maybe it's just a month or something special. Could be. Apparently, it was a Saturday, so it wasn't Friday the thirteenth. Certainly. I'm assuming they just took craig's birthday and just shifted it slightly so it wasn't literally craig's birthday i guess so So it probably had to be 1968 because that's how daniel craig is that's probably that's the more realistic and less interesting answer yeah but like if they could pick if they had the year and they had to keep that year fair enough but april 13th i would think that has some significance but fortunately i don't know what i'm not sure yeah so yeah green is approaching the plane and he gets on this private plane um, and we see he's actually stepping on the plane where the Americans were, where Beam and Felix were sitting. And they greet him, and he was like, ah, friend, hello. Beam is very friendly and upbeat towards Green. So we cut to the plane in mid-flight, and there's a little bit of rocking. I think someone's all like, jeez. Like, oh. Beam is very American. Oh, this. And, oh, hate that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the man with the haircut is having a coffee. That's all I have to say about that. Um, I did look up his name. Okay. It is Elvis. Oh my God. <laughs> Just Elvis. I'm not seeing a second name here. Does that make him any better? I think a little bit, actually. <laughs> Maybe. I, I quite like that. <laughs> what, Elvis? Elvis with the terrible haircut. <laughs> Elvis. I love that book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he's just having a coffee. 
it's just what Elvis does in this film. Like he just has these extremely minor moments, but they're not quite minor enough where you don't see them. It's just he's having a coffee <laughs> and he's shaking a bit. He's having a great time. Oh, Elvis. So Green is saying like, so do we have an understanding? And being very helpfully then explains what their understanding is. So he recaps that the Americans will agree to recognize the new government in Bolivia as long as they get like the last remaining oil. I put bouts, but I'm not too sure what word he uses. Just he's promised a load of oil in Bolivia, I think. Um, and Green says, well, if, as long as that's what you want and that you don't find diamonds. And this this was this dialogue I got a bit lost in. I don't know what they're talking about here because they talk about diamonds and then Beam's like, we'll have to verify the find but this never comes back ever again. In short, Americans are getting oil, Green's getting his new government. That's it. Yeah. Um, so Felix is still putting his grumpy face in the corner, <laughs> looking all mad. Um, and Green is like, then talking about how the Americans are all involved. They're like all over the world. I think they're trying to make some sort of point here, how... Yes, Green is interfering with Bolivia and Americans are helping, but America has done this all over the world, destabilizing nations like the Middle East. And um, Elvis, haircut man, then shows a picture of Bond on his phone. I don't know where he got it. I guess don't worry about it. Um, shows that to Green. And Green shows that to Beam. And then Beam says to Felix, like, hey, do you know who that is? And it gets a little bit tense here. And Felix leans over, he takes a look, and he just quite slowly is like, sorry. So basically saying, I don't know who that was. And then Beam just straight away says, well, that's James Bond, British Secret Service. So it's like, oh, dear, got him. Mm. Although, again, I don't think that ever comes back. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there might be a line after this, and that's it. <laughs> just, yeah, you're right. Yeah. because hmm. uh, like, There's a line after this, but that's it. But Green says, I need you to take care of him for me to the Americans and Beam saying like, that won't be a problem. So I guess I'll just say what I said before. It's like this scene is probably just doing a bit too heavy lifting, too much stuff in here. Like all these ideas that's in this film are, are quite big scale. The idea that there's this secret organization and then Green's like part of that and is then like trying to get this oil or trying to get some land in Bolivia, but then also is connected to the Americans and the CIA, and then they're doing a deal to recognize this new government to get this oil, but maybe, but he's not after the oil? It's 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 a little bit confused. It's like, I think the ideas of it are very big, but because they're trying to do so much in so little time, and Green, who's not the most interesting person, um doesn't really sell a lot of this and it kind of makes some of this feel a little bit silly like they're trying so hard that it's almost like cute how big they're trying to go with the politics of this film yeah yeah i think that's the thing is it's quite a the the actual topic of this i'm not it's mm, films don't have to be crazy uh and i think we've said before about i mean one of my top films i've ranked so far is for your eyes only and that has quite a um i mean a lot of it's just like that that atac thing is like there's nothing like crazy going on in terms of like all maniacal stuff and this is similar where it is a very realistic i'm sure uh situation about trying to get oil or whatever it ends up being and and overthrowing governments but i think the problem is 
you, I, you, you need someone stronger than Green to sort of carry that. And I don't think he does, really. I mean, I get that it's like he is just one part of this organization that's doing that. But I don't know. It's not until a little bit later on when we do see that there is this bigger organization around him that I think it starts getting more interesting. But right now, it's like I don't really care. It's just one guy talking to the CIA about this very, very average plot. So, no, yeah, I would have preferred maybe this get pushed to later in the film, I guess, like maybe after this. I don't know how that would have fit, but after the next scene, maybe yeah. it would have made more sense. But yeah, they're just overloading you with stuff. And yeah, I did say about Green being the problem, and, and so did you. But yeah, I'm a little bit undecided on it. Is it just this plot is too big for this film, or is it Green, or is it both? But there is something here that just feels a little bit off. Maybe a Bond film shouldn't so directly have about Americans destabilizing governments. I'm not saying you couldn't do that, but this is just like one small part of this film that has Bond having revenge for Vesper whenever it feels like talking about that stuff. And then the secret organization and then like whatever green is doing with this government working with bolivia and trying to get land and the americans are involved and then just like like and then, then camille and her event story it's like con- considering how much they have in here they don't necessarily do a bad job of juggling between the two but they kind of do a bad job making you invested in the overall plot of the film because there's just so many things they have to cover yeah that's exactly it but yeah, so I, I wish they kind of stripped this down a little bit and focused on this. If you want to talk about Green working with the corrupt Americans, great. But you probably need to remove some other stuff um, to make that strong enough to keep the film going. Um, so their plane lands in Austria. And we get some more text in. How did you feel about the the location text that appears whenever they go somewhere new? I don't want to sound like a grump. I don't want to be like Felix, but I didn't like it. no. It just seemed a bit cheesy. I got that as well, yeah. like So every single location has unique fonts, and it's quite artsy. Like They make very unique fonts for each of it, and it does... I don't think the rest of the film warrants it, really. Like I don't think anything else matches them going for this over-the-top style. You expect a more colourful film to have this sort of fonts, and maybe they are trying to con- create a contrast, but I would have kind of picked the more standard boring but more spy to the point text on screen. Yeah. This used yeah. to really bother me when I first watched this film when I was younger. Nowadays, <laughs> it's fine. Like, it's not a big deal. But I remember seeing that, like the very first one at the start of the film, being like, ew. <laughs> no, thank you. Shaking your fist at the screen. Yeah, I, I didn't like it. But nowadays, I don't like it, but it's just a small part of the film. Um, So... Green gets in the pack of a car and he's all in a tux. I think Elvis is probably there in a tux as well. And Beam and Felix watch them drive away from the plane. And Felix tells Green about like, sorry, Felix tells Beam. We got Beam and Green, everybody. (laughs) Different characters, though. Felix tells Beam like, oh, is that someone who you really want to work with? And Beam's all like, yeah, because we only work with nice people. Slaps him around the back of the head, calls him an idiot. No, he doesn't, sadly. He doesn't do that. (laughs) But we were that close to him being like, you doofus! It's just how he kind of portrays all this. Where he's very over-the-top cocky American. Where it's like, oh yeah, we only work with nice people. 
And then Beam says, I need to know you're on the team and that you value your career. So Felix is in a difficult position. So I think that's why they did the thing with the phone, but it doesn't really quite connect and click. But you are supposed to know that Felix is involved in this, but he doesn't like it. Unless, you know, just in case you miss his grumpy face in the corner for the last five minutes. Somehow. Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> they, do, they do a good job of making this beam guy very unlikable very quickly. I'll say that. Yeah. Almost too well, in a way. There's like no yeah. balance with this character. It's just like, I'm CIA. We're Americans. <laughs> We're going to take over the world. <laughs> We're the evil Yanks. We're oh, here to yeehaw. steal your oil. <laughs> Give me that oil. <laughs> like, it's a little bit too much like that. There's no balance with this guy. Yeah. Um, so the car that Green is in, he drives through the streets. I think here is when they do another one of those, like, look how poor it is, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can't, well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So it's at night, and he's he's being driven through the streets, and we see Bond following in a car, tracking with his phone, and I bet we got some pretty good music here. I've been quite critical of the music, but I can't quite exactly remember how this sounds like, but I, f I remember it being good. Is it? Is this as he goes into... Wait, what, what part is this? This is where they're like driving through the streets and then they get to the event. Oh, okay. No, I, the music I'm thinking of that I liked was a bit later on. I don't okay. really remember this one. Yeah. The, I can't exactly remember how it goes because it was more atmospheric music from what I remember. And I don't think the soundtrack of this, this film is very good, but it does have a good track here and there. Like here and there, you will get a scene that has a good score. So yeah, that's that's more than I can say for other Bond films. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Green arrives at an event and it's it's a very fancy event. Everyone in all these suits. Uh, well, the event is actually the opera. I'll just go ahead and say that. Uh, this is everyone coming to the opera. Um, and Bond enters from like behind the scenes because it's this like outdoor huge stage. So there's all the people at the front in their suits, all the rich people with champagne and dresses. And Bond goes around the back to the backstage and he goes into one of like the entrances for the artists to go fully backstage. And we see like a woman is getting like a fake wound makeup. So there, there's a lot of shots here. Like it's not super frantic editing, but it does jump around a lot. Like it is that same editing style where we see all these different things happening at the same time. Everyone at the front having drinks and laughing and stuff people getting ready for the opera and then what bond is doing um so bond enters the door and green is shaking hands with people and we see that somebody goes to get their suit they go to get their like uh, tux and they can't find it and we just cut to bond walking outside the room in a suit so he stole he stole that tux um so now he's back in this suit which Makes me feel a little bit like I don't really dislike that. I know they had to have some sort of reason for how he got into a suit and he did need a suit for this, but they went through all the trouble with Vesper saying how Vesper got him the suit. But now this time it just so happens he's able to steal the exact same type of suit that Vesper gave him in the last film. Well, yeah, like they have that that shot of the guy as he's trying to as he's opening the wardrobe or whatever it is to get the suit out and from behind it's like it almost does look like daniel craig they perfect they, i guess they had to pick someone that had a, a similar stock to craig to sell it so you know i can appreciate that they at least tried to make it match up logically but uh no you're right that whole sort of i sized you up and it's a perfect fit and eh, this one will do now and you yeah you just found good. it that, that seems yeah. cool <laughs> looks great <laughs> oh um, so Bond is looking around. He's, he goes up top and looks on this balcony and sees everyone like mingling 
um, in this like lobby area and he sees green and he also sees that everyone's like been giving a gift bag there's like these quite fancy nice bags but somebody goes up to the table to get a gift bag they give their name presumably and the woman gives him a secret bag there are bags underneath the table and gives him this the special super secret bag so Ooh. bond decides to follow that man and some you hear somebody saying all oh, the performance is about to begin so man uh, bond follows the man into the bathroom and he steals the bag you somewhat assume um and he kind of goes through it and bond finds like a little cue not as in <laughs> desmond hello oh hello Hi. bond <laughs> Now pay attention. <laughs> I thought you died. No, not just really. Retired. <laughs> I just shrunk. That's what I was. I'm when not... I was going down. That's actually I was. I was shrinking in that scene. This was my escape plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a borrower now. Oh, interesting, Desmond. Cool. Oh, this, is, uh, this might be the dumbest thing that we have said <laughs> on this podcast so far. A tiny Desmond Llewellyn in a bag as a gift. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets one. <laughs> Everyone gets one. Yeah, he's cloned himself as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but no, it's a little Q symbol, like on a badge or a pin or something like that. Um, but he also finds a wireless earphone or earbud. So he puts that in his ear and Green elsewhere is sitting down and you can see him doing the same thing, putting the, the thing in his ear. So Bond leaves and he breaks the door handle so no one gets in. I did like how they just cut to, they didn't even show him fighting that guy. And this is what I mean, like I've said a few times now, but this is the bits that you can cut out. Like, you didn't need a fight scene there. You just see him knocked out. Bond has the bag. Fine. Yeah, like, especially with Bond, you buy it. That he goes into a room with someone and he comes out with the stuff. Like, yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, so the opera is now starting. Um, it's, it's getting some singing. Um, and we get some... We see Bond is climbing up these metal stairs, like, behind the opera. So he's not actually sitting down. He's kind of going up this like scaffolding sort of stuff behind the stage. And we see Elvis, the haircut man, just like awkwardly smiling. He's like watching the show and seems to be like really into it. He's, yeah, yeah. Maybe he's never been to the opera before. This is his first time. Yeah, it might be. But he looks like he's about to cry or something. But <laughs> it's why I say like that's such a short bit. But, but, and this character ultimately doesn't do anything. You just see him doing very tiny things like so far he's just like called the number had a coffee and now he's enjoying the opera <laughs> i guess yeah i mean he is the the he's definitely not that funny but he is like the closest to that sort of character where whatever he's in is usually a little bit of a like more light-hearted thing i'm thinking later on when you see him in the neck brace it's just so silly like <laughs> yeah i don't understand what they were going for at all um, but Bond reaches the top of the stage and it's like a giant eye, like this huge eye. Um, and Bond kind of is at the top and he's looking at the crowd. But he starts hearing some voices. So in his earpiece that he has in, he hears some voices. So in the background, we've got the opera that's going on, but he's also hearing voices and people start kind of talking and somebody starts ar- asking about a pipeline. And Bond's like, shut up, Electra, this is a wrong film. Like... <laughs> I thought I killed you. Yeah, we moved past this, didn't we? Why are we back on pipelines? <laughs> uh, but no, actually, they are talking about pipelines. And Green says, oh, we need like two kilometers more or something like that. And he's all like, yep, does anyone object? And uh, they get silence. Nobody objects. And somebody's all asking, like, oh, where do the Americans stand on the plan? And 
I think Green explains they don't care. It's completely fine. And during all of this, someone says about quantum. Someone says the name quantum. Um, there's quite a lot of dialogue that you're not supposed to 100% understand. But but oh, really? Green... Oh, I didn't... Do they actually say quantum here? Yeah. Oh, I thought they left that right to the very end. No, no. Someone says, like, I don't know exactly what the line is, but yeah, there's a lot of dialogue, people jumping between them. But someone says quantum. Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind then. <laughs> yeah, so this is quantum. Um, but Green talks about, oh, it's the world's most precious resource. Therefore, Bolivia should be our top priority. And at this point, Bond cuts in and says, can I offer an opinion? And says, you people should find a, a better place to meet. So everyone looks a little bit panicked because Bond has now jumped in and everyone starts leaving. Most of the people on the call gets up and starts leaving and Bond just takes pictures of them. So the opera at this point with the sound is going all in. It's all very big and theatrical and it's all very loud as Bond is taking these pictures one by one on his camera phone and kind of getting cap- uh, pictures of people within this organisation. And we see Mr. White is actually in the crowd. Um, very quick shot of him. Um, but Bond sees that somebody's coming up the stairs so he drops down, knocks them out, and then just slowly walks down the stairs normally. So Green is one of the people who was leaving as well. So we see Green leaving and Bond leaving. And then we cut to Tanner <laughs> in the MI6 office real quick. Just a reminder that Tanner is working late. Good for him. Um, so then back to Bond and Green. And they just happen to bump into each other as they're both leaving. And there's almost like a little bit of a panic look in, in Green's face. But... Green is surrounded by a load of bodyguards and Green then goes to leave and all the bodyguards go and chase after Bond and start shooting. So the music continues to be the opera music, this loud opera yeah, music and vocals, you know, that very classic sound. And it goes into an action scene and Bond is being chased with all this opera music over the top and he runs through a kitchen, people shooting at him, he's being chased... And we cut between like three different things where at the moment in the opera, somebody's been like stabbed, like faked. So you've got like a woman kind of singing about that. And then the stage of the opera is this giant eye. And then we also have the shots of Bond being chased and fighting people throughout this venue. So we cut between those three things very rapidly, but we keep like the same sound throughout. Like you get sound effects of Bond fighting people but that's very secondary to the the opera itself so we're cutting between these quite quick so um bond fights all these people and kind of storms through um he eventually gets to the top and waits for somebody he has a gun and somebody else comes through with a gun and he just points at his head and says drop it he does and the guy and bond asks who do you work for and the guy just says piss off (laughs) Um, that's fair there's quite a few swears in this film probably the most swearing we've had so far um, even M has a go. Yeah. But yeah, we get quite a few swear words in this one. Um, so Bond holds the man of the top of the roof and says, like, who do you work for? Um, I think he might not even ask, to be honest. But but we see Green getting into his car to leave and Bond just drops the man and he lands on the roof of Green's car. Green says, is he one of ours? And I think Elvis takes a look and says, no. And Green's like, well, why is he looking at me then? He shouldn't be looking at me. So they get out of the car, shoot him. And then drive off and we see Tanner on the phone and he's looking at all the pictures that Bond sent him. And he's like, get me M. 
So Ooh. I'm going to say that up to this point in the film, I was having a pretty bad time. Okay. Like miserable. <laughs> oh, miserable. <laughs> because Ooh. it was like a lot of the ideas were good, but I just couldn't connect to any of it. And it seemed like a complete mess. And I was just pretty miserable. But this scene is when things start coming around. And not because he suddenly changed, Mark Foster changes the editing or the directing. I just feel like the ideas of this kind of catches up. Like we finally have an idea that matches this more chaotic style where it starts off slow and is very loud and in your face, which is what we've already seen. Like the audio has been a huge part of this film, which I think is awesome. I love it. Uh, But actually to then see it kind of come together with this idea of Bond behind the scenes like we're going from quite a tense scene of bond finding out what's going on to then this crazy scene with the same audio which then gets bigger and bigger and bigger and him fighting people that that works <laughs> like we finally have an idea where that presentation and style works and it suddenly like kind of clicks a lot more and you're just like oh this is what he wanted to do that's awesome i can appreciate that hmm yeah, I mean, this is, as I said before, this was the only real bit of the film that I remembered um, before rewatching, and I think because it is so distinct. And as I was watching this, I was, or after this scene, I was trying to work out, like, is I like it, but is it just trying to be kind of artsy for the sake of being artsy? Was it Mark Forster just thinking, oh, let's just have, let's just have the opera song carry on playing as we see. Bond taking out all these all these guards and and like cut but cut between this. I mean, the the opera is called Tosca. I don't have a clue what it's about, but you know, as Tom said, there's scenes of like someone being killed. Like, well, let's have some shots of someone being killed interspersed. And I was trying to take a step back and think, like, does this actually mean anything, or do I just like it because it's something that we haven't really seen in the Bond film before, and it's just kind of cool. And I think it's the latter. Like, I don't, I don't, maybe if there is the, maybe there is elements there between like, oh, there's themes of the opera and it links in with what Bond is doing right now sort of thing, apart from just killing people. Perhaps that's there. I don't really like it for that reason, though. I just think it's a an interesting, different editing style to do, especially the sound, the sound mixing is, is really stand out. Um, and for me, it works on that level more than anything else. Yeah, and I think what makes it work is that it's the same style we've already seen, but where it works here is that you don't need to know the details. It, you're totally okay to skip the details of how Bond fights these guys like that. They do have a whole fight in this kitchen and running around. He is fighting other guys, but you know, I don't need to know the details because they've already set up the scene and I know roughly what is happening. So it kind of allows them to just go all in on this direction with this fast editing because i already get it it's just bond fighting a load of bad guys which is stuff we've seen before so let's do something interesting and unique with it and have this quite visual and audio intense experience which is something different but with the other ones you do need to know what's going on like i need to know what's going on with chasing mitchell because a it's mitchell so we need to know what's going on there uh, but B, I need that sense of progression with this chase because this chase is going from one area to another area to another area and that all needs to connect in a way that is satisfying and makes sense to the to the person. But for this, you don't. It doesn't matter. It's just Bond fighting a load of people. So let's use this edit- editing cell for it to work. Um, 
which is why I think ultimately it is great and why I can kind of see what Foster was doing. It's just a shame with the other scenes he couldn't kind of have more restraint and allow people to sit in the scene a bit more and have that those scenes breathe a bit more but yeah the setup of this is what makes it work you don't need to know the details so instead you just have this frantic quite exciting scene that goes all in with this idea and it's like everything that he was trying to do finally works and lands for this scene Uh, my only complaint is that it's too short (laughs) <laughs> like i would have liked it if the fight went on for a bit longer and stuff but you know it's fine it's not a big deal at the end but i would have liked it if this was actually a little bit longer yeah yeah i i one other aspect of it i really like too is what we actually see go on so this is this is a, a gigantic opera outdoors tons and tons of people and it's also where the quantum organization is having their their meeting they are catching up through the the earbuds and i think uh it's this is where you get that the, the the bigger picture the bigger picture where there's all these different heads talking and then there's like oh what, what about this plan going on in canada and what about this plan going on here or whatever and it sort of then makes it all a bit more worth it to have like gone through all this stuff about the organization who is this man and we're finally getting a little peek now at just how far it goes because before it was always just uh oh they're everywhere oh yeah look mitchell's one of them and now it's like you're getting a bit of the the higher up stuff to it. And it just kind of, whenever, when I watched this, it made me compare to like Spectre, where they have a very similar big organization meeting. And, but there it's done in a very evil manner. Like, oh, look at all these people in the room, a big table and everything, and dramatic lighting. Whereas this, this to me feels, <laughs> I don't want to say natural when we're talking about like a giant evil organization, but I think it's done in a way more interesting way to have it in this setting which then leads on better to the the chase afterwards so yeah i like that do we want to have the conversation now about how quantum is actually specter oh no <laughs> no <laughs> do, you, I, do, do you ever want to have it today n- no <laughs> i guess i well yeah but we the, can if okay, you want the, the reason i bring it up is because for me I think this works better with it being Spectre. And I actually enjoy it more now that I know it's Spectre. um, Because I think Quantum as an organization is a little bit lame. And this is all you get of this organization for the entire film. This is it. Like, you get, there's some details, but everything else is now about green. So to me, it actually feels a little bit better that Quantum is just this one part of something bigger that being Spectre. Whether they kind of betray that or fit that in together well is a different conversation. <laughs> uh, but I feel like this, this in retrospect, I actually like it more because I think it makes more sense that it would be Spectre. But if this was just Quantum, then they just don't flesh this out enough. Like, this is it. This is all we ever see in the film. So I like the idea that what we're getting is an incomplete picture and we, we get more of that filled out in the later films. What... What would your opinion have been if they could have they didn't need to do the whole quantum stuff and this was just Spectre in this film? Um, as would in they actually say it's Spectre. Yeah. Would that have been better? I think so. I think that would have worked, yeah. But I also okay. like the idea of like keeping the unknown a little bit. I might have actually liked if they didn't even call them quantum and they're just the organization, and then that organization is revealed to be Spectre in a couple of films' time. That's probably would be the ideal. 
But to me, like, Quantum is only said, like, twice in the entire film, and you spend so little time with these people that, to me, it just makes sense that that would be something else that they just haven't explored, when really it's probably more just they didn't have time, the writer's strike, like... I I choose to see the flaw of this film, which is this quantum is just not fleshed out enough to be interesting outside of the scene and just try and turn that into a positive and say, actually, this is su- something bigger, which is Spectre. The Spectre of Solace. No, I, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think with with hindsight that that still that works, I guess. I mean, it's retcon to hell, but yeah. But I think I think I prefer it being quantum, actually. At, at this moment, I suppose, I just I don't like to even think about the whole Spectre stuff. I think this is they're they're big enough on their own to warrant this being the the thing that that that's big enough for me. But I I can see where you're coming from um, with it. Like the, you know what we know now, looking back, it's I guess it could work both ways. Yeah, well, it's interesting that we both are at the opposite end of this one. I think that's quite cool, really, because we know they did wreck on this. Um, and quantum massaging hours a different context but it sounds like you just you're not into that but you can still just push that aside and enjoy this for yeah. what it is but for me i actually think it enhances it so i bring that all in and i like the idea of this being spectre it's interesting it it sounds like uh yeah i guess people probably have their own opinions on it and some people might push it aside some people might bring it in and say i hate it so i actually don't like this film as much but yeah it's it's very interesting if Spectre had been a better film, I'd probably be saying otherwise right now. But, I, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> That's probably clouding my judgment at the moment as well. What they should have done is, like, George Lucas it. So there's, like, you can hear someone going, cuckoo, during the scene. You're like, oh, that's why the... Ah. <laughs> oh, on the, on, the, on the earbud, you just go, cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, you just hear this, like, cuckoo. <laughs> oh, oh okay it all makes sense now it was all there all along it was right there we just didn't listen <sighs> idiots oh anyway <laughs> where do we get up to oh yeah tanner um tanner has had all the oh by the way can i just point out as well that that phone that phone was taking pictures of the backs of people's heads I really shouldn't question it. It's more gadget stuff. But how is it getting their faces from that? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's Sony. Sony's got really good phones. Uh, yeah, so Tanner's got the the images through from Bond and uh, rings up M to to tell her who they've ID'd. And M is in the middle of running a bath. So <laughs> I do like these little glimpses into M's home life that we're getting in these films. You know, first she was in bed with her husband, and now she's having a bath. Very nice. You know, she's just a lady. She needs. She has a life outside of MI6, believe it or not. Is this uh, here where we hear M's husband say something, or is that later? No, I think it is here. I think he says like, "Oh, this this is your line," or something like that. Yeah. When the phone comes through, I guess so. Because I remembered in between us recording the episodes that he dies. <laughs> when does he die? No, yeah, he dies between this film and Skyfall. Because <laughs> in Skyfall, M talks about her late husband. Oh no! Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. And she doesn't <laughs> even have Mitchell to support her through these times. She has no one. No, there's no one but the bulldog. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, Tanner is phoning through and telling her that. Uh, well, he says he lists off a couple of people. Can't remember who they are. The one that they sort of make note of is one called Guy Haynes. 
because he's a, a special envoy to the PM, so he's very very close to the British government, this member of Quantum. And he also says to M that somehow they've already managed to see the guy that was pushed off by Bond and then shot by Green, because uh, they think that Bond's, well, pushed him, or shot him and pushed him. They think Bond did everything there. So M calls through to Bond, and she's doing this, and with this whole little conversation that she's now having with Bond is her uh, applying some like moisturizer or something, or she spends a long time rubbing something into her face and then she's taking doing off. a nightly face routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do how else do you think Judy looks so good? Come on. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that doesn't just happen, people. No, no, you've got to put the work in. All right. So she needs Bond to come in and debrief, uh, which Bond is obviously not agreeing to, but she kind of makes note that you just killed a member of Special Branch, uh, being that that guy that he killed was the bodyguard to Guy Haynes. So he's just killed a fellow agent pretty much. Quite a big deal. And Bond, uh, is there, does Bond, is there a little reaction from Bond when she says that? Or does he just blow it off? I think he just blows it off. Okay. Because she does like say it as if it's like, you know, it's a big deal, but he doesn't care. Um, but he's interested in still finding the men who tried to kill her. So yeah, I think he hangs up there and... M afterwards tells Tanner, who's still connected, to cancel all of Bond's cards and his his passports and um, kind of block everything from him and also to investigate this Haynes guy and finally to be careful who you trust. Yeah, I quite like that last bit. Hopefully you're a better judge of character than I am. Mm. I think that's quite nice. Uh, But yeah, I quite like the Bond and M interactions in this film, but there's something that really, really ruins it for me when something is kind of revealed towards the end. So I guess I'll save that for for then. But I think the actual dialogue between the two, like there's a bigger focus on M here. And I think that works quite, quite well. It's nice to have Bond and M going back and forth. It gets a little repetitive. Did you, did you have to kill that person? Yeah, whatever. Okay, come oh, in. <laughs> I can't trust you, but I do though. But I don't know, but I do though. It's like, it gets a bit confused, but it's nice that th- there's um, a lot of conversation between Bond and M uh, throughout. M is a very complicated character in this film. I I didn't really quite get where she stood for a lot of it. I think afterwards, you sort of when you see the film as a whole, it all makes a bit more sense. But like, yeah, I think a lot of these scenes where she's just saying the same thing over again about oh, I can't trust anyone, I can't trust you, and now I can't trust them, and I guess it's meant to be conveying that. Like the people around her are kind of uh, falling to to this quantum organization, or you know, more things are coming to light. But yeah, I think it in the moment I didn't really care much about these scenes, apart from the very fundamental bit of just seeing Judy Dench on screen. I like so <laughs> fundamentally, it's a very good superficial. Scene. Yeah, exactly. But no, I wish we got a bit of M, like how it's actually affecting MI6 and her, because it's almost like hinted at that she's not trusting people and she feels a bit insecure about all this, because as mm. we saw before, she was distressed. I wish we saw like some measures being put in at MI6 or something, right? Like that they were actually, actually trying to like weed out the quantum people, not quite like an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, style thing like Marvel did but just something you know but I guess it's yeah. not the focus but I would have liked if she was like almost being proactive with this stuff that would have been quite interesting to see yeah that would have been good you're right I guess just not enough time in this film there's already got too much in it but that would have been a really interesting scene to see and with that you've reached the end of part one of episode 22 of the Bond Revisited podcast 
Join myself and Joe next time where Bond teams up with an old ally, finds a crude reference to Goldfinger on his bed, all leading to the final fight in the middle of a desert in Bolivia. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two. 